This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Grillin' JR with the man himself, Mr. Jim Ross. Jim, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm good, man. Couldn't be better. I'm happy to be here with you again, and I'm excited to, for the folks to join us. We thank you guys for your your uh, loyalty and your support, and we hope we're not disappointing you. Our numbers have been great. We're making a dent in the, what we want to do, so that's a, I'll contribute that to Conrad's uh, format and his ideas, and we're, we're having fun. So, And it's been a unique week. We're going to revisit one of the hits, as they say, King of the Ring, 1998. Uh, we're going to talk about everything that happened on this show, but this has got to be the most, I mean, this is the, the, the show where you have a call that's probably the most quoted. I mean, it's been, it went viral as they say, is this the most (laughs) notable call you've ever had? You think? Yeah. Yeah. It's the most memorable because I get asked about it. Uh, almost, well, if I'm around wrestling fans, it's inevitable. If you and I were to do a Q and a, we're going to do some Q and a's going for some stage shows. Uh, we, as we've talked about, I'll promise you, there'll be somebody in that audience that'll want to know something about that event in uh, June of 1998. I, I'm, I'm getting ready to board a plane, uh, about, I don't know, maybe six months ago, going someplace. And I'm in the priority line, uh, uh American priority line. Uh, and, uh, to pre-board and this guy and his son, son's probably 12, 13, they're standing right behind me and the dot, the get, the dad is immediately behind me. And so he's, uh, he gets real close to me. Right. And he says, uh, I hear him, he's whispering. I think for a second, he's talking to his kid, but he's talking to me and he says, as God is my witness, he's broken in half. <laughs> So the, he commences to, to quoting all these, uh, these, these, these things I said during that match of Foley and Undertaker at Hell in a Cell at the King of the Ring 98. And so finally he said something else. And I didn't, I, I didn't, the kid, the kid kind of flew out of my mind and I turned around, so you know, I turned around the guy. It's okay, buddy. Look, I know you're a fan. I appreciate it very much, but you know, you whispering in my ear, don't look good. <laughs> and so I was going to tell him that. And so I turned around and, and the, and the, the kid was not as starstruck as his dad, to be honest with you. But he said, Jr. we're sorry. Apologize for the old man. who's just sitting there with his mouth open. Dad, uh, Jr. we're sorry. My dad does this all the time at home. He quotes that match every day in some shape, form or fashion. And my mom hates it. <laughs> I said, well, your mom's got good taste. So anyway, you, you never know where you're going to hear it. Right. And I, you know, there's a. A friend of mine is the starting left tackle for the, or he's the right tackle, left tackle for the Baltimore Ravens, Orlando Brown. And Orlando played here at OU, coached by Coach Bill Biedenboe, the great line coach, who's my neighbor here in Norman. And Orlando uh, wanted some T-shirts because there's a T-shirt out at Pro Wrestling Tees that says uh, uh, all those quotes are on there. And I think one of them was, you know, uh, uh, the uh, – they killed him or something like that. He wanted to wear, he got three or four of those shirts to wear under his shoulder pads 
but uh, that's kind of the, the, the damn match and the quotes kind of go beyond just the wrestling world. It just it picked up. And, and I know a lot of guys that, uh, I've met guys at ESPN, Fox sports that will quote the quote them and they're big timers type thing. So it just happened that that those calls stuck and, uh, you know, it was without a doubt the most memorable night that I maybe have ever had, uh, in one match that, that did not involve a tragedy. It was a near tragedy and, and, and Mick Foley avoided it, dodged the bullet. Quite frankly, we all did, but, uh, it was, it's, it's the most quoted thing that I can, I recall in my career ever. Let's get to the money of today's episode though. King of the ring, 1998 went down on June 28th at the civic arena right there in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Of course it was a sellout just like almost everything else in 1998. It drew 17,087 fans. 15,505 of those were paying customers and it set an all time city gate record of 539,660 bucks, but check this out nearly 149,000 in merchandise. You know, when you hear about sort of wrestling hubs or hotbeds, you hear about Chicago, you hear about New York, you hear about Dallas, you know, you hear about Atlanta, you don't really hear about Pittsburgh that often. Why do you think that is? I mean, some of the all-time greats are there, you know, Bruno San Martino, Kurt Angle, Shane Douglas, and you know, even these days, Corey Graves and Elias all from Pittsburgh. Why don't you think Pittsburgh has a reputation as being more of a wrestling town? Well, I guess if we perceive that Pittsburgh is in the quote unquote, Northeast of the United States, that, uh, uh, the Northeast, the star of the Northeast, as far as wrestling is concerned, is New York city. Right. So I think maybe there was a little bit of being in that shadow of New York city, as far as being considered a Northeast city, but you, you're right about the, uh, the market itself. You know, Bruno San Martino was like, there was Bruno, then there was everybody else. There was Bruno and there was everybody else. And, and, you know, Mick Foley got trained there by Dominic DiNucci. That was another thing. And a lot of the, that used to be a little territory hub there. Uh, you know, I don't know that, uh, Corey Gray's and. Elias belong in the same conversation with Bruno just yet, but maybe they will someday. I hope they do. Uh, but I, I liked it. And of course, Larry Zabisco came out of there was Bruno's protege. Oh, hi, Larry. You know, Larry's that guy. Yeah. JR, can I come on your podcast and talk about Bruno? No, Larry, you can't. He's dead. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> well, so, well uh, I love Larry, but seriously, good talents came out of there, but look, it's like saying who's the greatest Yankee. Well, that's right. easy. Babe Ruth. Sure. So Bruno was Babe Ruth of wrestling, WWF, Pittsburgh, and anything else in the Northeast. So it was Bruno's town. And it, of course, my late wife, Jan, was raised there, went to a Shaler High School, graduated from Shaler High School. And uh, she was, uh, of course, my angel. And so I'm close to Pittsburgh. And I do still go to Permanente Brothers every time I go to Pittsburgh. And, and then I take a Lipitor so I don't get my cholesterol crazy. But I, I love the whole city. Good that's it's just a great place great place and and man that crowd that night was was jacked i watched this show last night uh in its entirety I watched it again this morning i enjoyed the whole damn presentation but pittsburgh is a special town and they rose to the occasion on that night indeed they did and you guys were experiencing rising gates you know we've talked about you know year over year how the business was changing from 94 to 95 96 to 97 but here from 97 to 98 it's incredible. You know, your average attendance in June of 97 is 5,687 a year later, 
come June of 98, we're up 68%. We're at 9,568. And that's your average attendance. Your average gate is actually up 92%. You go from 93,000 and change in June of 97 to over $179,000 in June of 98. And you're selling out 46% of your house shows here. Uh, the prior year, you were selling out less than 6%. Ratings, of course, they're way up too. The tide has turned by the summer of 98. You're now beating WCW in, in almost every category. Uh, television ratings, no exception there. In June of 97, you were getting a 1.7. Here a year later, you're up 58%. You're getting a 2.7. Drastic, drastic improvement across the board. We talked a little bit about 97 last week when we covered King of the Ring, and we were talking about you know, the way the, the, the mood was in the office that, Hey, we're at least talking about bankruptcy. It's been discussed because things are tight a year later. It's a new business. Is it not? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the, that attitude era talent, uh, really connected with their audience and, uh, they all had, they all had distinct and exclusive features and benefits to sell. They knew how to get themselves over and how to identify and to contact, uh, connect with their, with the audience. And the other thing that, and I think this, as we go through the show today, uh, and the raw after that and so forth, the raw before and after you can see the process of needing to make heels. And because, and I said, that's an issue right now. You know, people say talking about WWE from time to time about, well, they don't know how to make a baby face. I don't know that that's be accurate, but I will say that there is a case could be made that they're not real proficient right now. in developing villains and, uh, villains cannot be perpetuated and grown with 50, 50 booking. No baby face or heel can. So we were in a process of really developing heels because we had the baby face situation pretty well, uh, under, under control. Austin was getting over. Austin was coming bigger than life. And they also knew that we had, we were one turn away from having one a and one B because rock was young and hungry on that roster as well. So the baby face side of this whole equation was pretty damn solid. Uh, and they weren't the only two, but that was, they were the main horses in that respect. Undertaker hotter to help, uh, it's in 98 was, you know, he was, he was big time as he is, you know, he will be forever. So, uh, the heels was the issue. So that's what we did. And, and that was an interesting part about this whole, this show today is going to be about focusing on making some heels, but quite frankly, Conrad, the, the best heel we had in that during that period of time was Vince. I'm glad you, you know? mentioned that because I feel like that's sort of uh, a footnote in history because everybody talks about the rise of Steve Austin, but Steve Austin had to have somebody, you know, to oppose. And that opposition has never been stronger than with the Mr. McMahon character. You know, when you look at the success of 98, you know, most people would attribute this massive jump in the rise of Steve Austin. I think maybe what gets lost is the success, uh, you know, he had to have somebody to dance with and that's Mr. McMahon, but also the writing. And, and it was a combination of you, you had this super baby face because you had the super heel and the writing was, was perfect. It was exactly what the fans wanted at the time. Do you think we'll ever see that? I mean, everything clicking on all cylinders with the top program, because that really lifted the whole company, the McMahon Austin feud, did it not? Absolutely. And it, it eventually led to the company going public, the success of uh, stone cold, the rock, uh, the whole crew, uh, getting over, uh, all being very, very competitive with each other. The locker room was not a martial law environment, but it was a very competitive environment. Uh, 
And it also was a situation where the top guys had no issues conversing uh, with the boss. And I don't know how, uh, how that plays out today in their, in their company, but you know, the boss, everybody else does a lot of work and everybody else works hard. Uh, but Vince is always going to be the guy until he's no longer with us. God forbid, but that's the whole deal. That crew starting with taker and Austin, all those guys, they all had an open door to Vince. He'll say everybody's got an open door to him. And I think that's pretty much true. But they took advantage of it and developed a rapport with Vince where they could op- they could openly communicate. Remember, see the old man, converse, don't confront. And that's kind of what those guys figured out. And so a lot of this creativity, uh, not to knock the creative guys, but a lot of the creativity was the talents themselves coming up with ideas to help perpetuate their persona because nobody knew their persona better than they did. So it was a really a unique thing, but this will never, he should always get major credit, major props for this, uh, for the attitude error success. And then, then obviously leading WWE as an administrator and owner, and then as a top heel, uh, to becoming a public company and $160 million IPO. Talk to me a little bit about Vince Russo. We haven't spent a lot of time talking about him here on the show, but I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about, you know, perhaps. Uh, his influence was a, a critical part of the ingredient because when I tried to put over the writing, you pivoted a little bit back to, well, it was the talent too. Was it Russo who forged a relationship with some of these guys and that's what made the writing better or was it going to happen with or without Russo? No, I think Russo had a big part to play in that whole, uh, era, you know, and he, for, for where we wanted to go, be more bold. To, to have that attitude, to be a TV 14 product, which is a, a big change in the climate in WWE, uh, you needed special, you know, a special group of people, unique personalities to get that done. And, and, uh, he, he did that, uh, Russo, well, that was him. He was a big fan of Howard Stern, the out, you know, outrageous, uh, over the top, you know, overzealous stuff at time to time. And Vince McMahon was the guy that real Russo back in to give him some you know, to, as a, uh, put a bit in his mouth a little bit, but he pretty much let him go. But Russo was smart enough to know that you're not going to get all these ideas that you have in your head through, uh, the court system here. If you don't, a have the judge in your pocket, which is Vince and the key witnesses, uh, testifying for you, meaning the talent. So he listened to the talent that's smart for him. And, uh, I think Russo got in trouble more seemingly, I don't know. Cause I didn't work with him past uh, WWE. He got more trouble when he, when he started being a little bit more autonomous and didn't have that filter and didn't, maybe he didn't have the same rapport with talents in WCW at TNA, wherever he went after that, that's just my speculation. But to say that Russo did not have a major hand in creativity, uh, at, during that era would be a lie and that's not my style. So, you know, we've had our differences philosophical. We had them then we, if we work together, probably have them again now. Uh, we just have a different view of what wrestling should be, but that doesn't make him wrong. It doesn't make me right. It just makes us have a different opinion, but he's a, he was a key cog in that whole scenario. Let's talk a little bit about the countersuit that comes down, uh, here in late may WCW is going to file a lawsuit, I guess on may 18th. And they're trying to essentially mirror the lawsuit that you guys brought against WCW in 96. Of course, back then you were suing saying that, you know, the razor and diesel characters were your property and 
um, Kevin Nash and, and, and Scott Hall were certainly implying or inferring or, you know, confusing the audience by positioning themselves as outsiders, as Titan employees. So that's the, the crux of the lawsuit in 96. And now WCW is going to counter sue here. And they're going to say that because you guys have shown the CNN center, when you guys were, you know, doing an invasion angle, um, that, that they have similar damages. And they've also claimed that, you know, you're showing clips of Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan and Roddy Piper and Randy Savage. Talk to me a little bit about when this lawsuit comes in, how Vince responds and how McDivitt responds. Well, the, you hit the name, the key thing there is you mentioned Jerry McDivitt, another Pittsburgh guy, ironically, we're talking about King of Ring 98 in Pittsburgh. We have McDivitt and they didn't. That's a big difference. That's a big leg up for the WWE events. Uh, I looked at that suit essentially as a nuisance suit, Conrad. Right. I never thought it had any basis to move very far up the court system. I didn't see any judges or any in the courts spending a lot of time on uh, these arguments. And if, if we had made the same arguments, I would say the same thing. They seem to be nuisance suits. They got a little publicity. I don't know if it helped anybody publicity wise, but I thought all along it, it meant nothing. I remember having a couple of meetings with Vince about it. You know, we, we called off the dogs and some of the things, the hotline, uh, on air mentions, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but in, I don't know of anybody there that when we did the billionaire Ted skits, anybody endorsed it, there may have been some second fence there. There's always a few of those hanging around, but I don't, some of those guys, they would say, yes, if they would say shit, they had a mouthful, but the bottom, <laughs> but, but the bottom line is it, it was a waste of time. Did nothing. Didn't increase ratings. Didn't do anything positive, but stir the shit. It made no sense. So I felt the same thing in this lawsuit. The counter lawsuit. It's almost like, okay, we'll show you. We got lawyers too, by God. We got more than you do. Okay, good. It's kind of fun too, because you know, whereas you guys were claiming, Hey, you're, you're sort of making Scott Hall look and pretend and talk like razor Ramon. And they try to sue for the same thing saying, well, you've done that with, uh, X-Pac because that is a carbon copy of six Pac with the NWO and, and he's not his old one, two, three kid persona. I do want to mention, we had a uh, Jerry McDivitt as a special guest for a live, something to wrestle in Pittsburgh last year or year before. And, and as he was our guest, I couldn't believe that this was the line. He said, yeah, as a result of that lawsuit, eventually WCW settled with us and gave us 2 million bucks. And a few years later, we used that same $2 million to buy their company, <laughs> which I thought was just tremendous. Oh man. He, he, He's the, he's the best man. Uh, I went to his wedding. Jan and I did, you know, we were great, great friends. Still am great friends with Jerry. Uh, I can tell you this, man. Uh, if, if, if I were ever in bad trouble and I needed a, the, I mean, a, a badass M, MF, as far as a lawyer, he's the guy, he's the smartest, most strategic. He's got great street smarts and an amazingly high IQ. And boy, he's done great work for WWE and made his firm and himself a fortune off of the services he's provided Vince. So, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a funny story. That's how it went too. they got two million bucks, which in the, in the big scheme, how much money is that? Well, it's a lot of money to guys like me and you, but to those billionaires and these big corporations is not so much. And then the, that's what WWE paid for the entire WCW library, uh, $2 million. That to me was one of the great steals 
with quotes that I've ever been a part of in the business. McDivitt, you know, as a sidebar here, how much of a unsung hero is he to WWE success? Do you think, I don't think history really talks about him in that regard. They talk about him when it's time to get somebody out of trouble or whatever. Uh, but really, I mean, had Neidhart not gotten in trouble that one time and they needed an attorney to sort of, you know, write the ship. WWE's path may have looked a little differently. I mean, they had an ace in the hole with him for decades. Oh yeah. He's major player, major, major player. Um, I remember, uh, going to a hotel in, uh, New York city to prepare, he prepared me for, uh, my testimony in the Nicole Bass, uh, lawsuit. And, uh, he was, he was genius. Like, I mean, I was in awe of listening to him here, you know, here's how you pr- present this and certain words you do use certain words you don't use, uh, you know, be succinct, which I have a hard time doing as fans here could testify. Uh, but he was, he's amazing, man. Uh, I don't know. I never met another attorney. This, I mean, he, he puts other attorneys, uh, uh, they're in awe of him. I mean, he's, he's got a national reputation as one of the best lawyers in America. And this is no exaggeration of Russell speak. This son of a bitch is really, really good. And so he, he was, uh, he's bailed. He's, he's, uh, don't want to say bailed out, but he's defended the company honorably and thoroughly and successfully for many, many years. There's no way that all those victories and the progress of the WWE brand would have been as quick or maybe even happened as much if Jerry McDivitt had not been there as the head of the legal side. Let's keep it moving here and let's talk a little bit about, uh, TSN's off the record. The Winnipeg sun would, uh, run an article making fun of the fact that Steve Austin's appearance on that TSN show drew the largest audience in the history of the show. I, I don't know why they would poke fun at that. It's great success. Another feather in the cap for WWF at the time. Uh, but you guys had a longstanding relationship with them. Brent Hart was on it. Vince McMahon was on it. What was the relationship with TSN and off the record? And why did the WWE allow them so much access and talk to us about Landsberg, a guy we don't hear about anymore. What companies would you want to work for? Just capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good companies like bank of America, which just earned the prestigious just capital 2024 seal bank of America is ranked number one in the banking industry and number one for their ongoing commitment to workers offering best-in-class benefits, including a minimum wage of $25 an hour by 2025. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the Just Capital seal. Bank of America is ranked number one for ongoing commitment to their workers with initiatives like Sharing Success, which awarded 97% of their teammates additional compensation, nearly all in stock. This is the program's seventh consecutive year, awarding more than $4.8 billion in total. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. Yeah, Michael Landsberg was the host of that show. Uh, Michael's a, uh, a big advocate of mental health. Uh, he's suffered from depression, uh, uh, over the years. He's been very transparent in his issues. He's helped a lot of people. He still does Uh good dude. I was on this show a couple of times up there off the record and uh, he was, he asked the questions he, that you knew the fans would want answers to. Uh, he was very well prepared. 
but I think the TSN that that was one of TSN's uh, favorite shows. That's one of their 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 personal favorites there on their network. And at the time, if I'm not mistaken, we were on that network with wrestling, with Raw and so forth. That's right. So uh, it was a kind of a you know just cooperating with the network that we were on there. And they, they, they always solicited our guests because just as you mentioned, they, they, they drew ratings. It was a, it was a big number deal. So, uh, but it was a good thing for us and it was a positive thing. Michael was not there to butcher us. Unlike this, uh, the idiots that the Winnipeg sun were doing on that day. Why the hell would they say something like you're right? Why would you say something like that? Unless you're weak, unless you're insecure and your nuts would fit into a fucking thimble. That's what those guys are. Because why would you suggest that WWE getting these great numbers is a joke? I guarantee you TSN didn't think it was a joke. Nope. They, they loved it. And so that's just another example of, you know, of, it's almost like fat shaming or any other prejudice, you know, all those wrestling people. Oh well, yeah. We're wrestling people. Where, where do you live? I saw, I used to tell guys, these reporters, I used to, I live actually through the week on Uranus, but I, I, I commute and I'm here on the weekends to do wrestling. You asshole. I love you for that. Let's talk about the uh, junkyard dog. Unfortunately, we lost him mm. on June 2nd. Uh, he passed away way too early, just 45 years old. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring him up to you. Of course, you had a long history with the dog. Uh, yep. What's your favorite junkyard dog story you can share with us that you haven't shared on a show before? Oh, boy. Sylvester was a really, Sylvester Ritter's real name was, was a, he was a, a creation of, uh, of, uh, cowboy Bill Watts and Ernie Ladd, uh, other bookers ha- helped him. Buck Rogley was a big influence in, in JYD growth. Uh, cowboy was number one cause he saw what he had there. He had a black Superman who looked like a, a Greek God at the time. Was JYD a great wrestler? No, absolutely not. But he had unlimited charisma and he could sell tickets on the mic, his verbal skills, were base basic straightforward, but he spoke with such conviction and with a sparkle in his eye that you couldn't help, but not believe he was telling you the truth. If he said, I'm coming to new Orleans to whip butch Reed's ass, you better believe he's serious about coming to new Orleans to whip butch Reed's ass. Uh, I used to, tr- used to travel a lot with uh, Pee Wee Anderson. So, uh, Pee Wee Anderson, as I mentioned, was uh, JYD's driver. And basically he was JYD's babysitter, you know, Sylvester toward his latter days in WW uh, mid South had uh, little drug issues like the cocaine didn't do that much drinking, but he, he liked the drugs and then, uh, and he liked to smoke weed. Now I'm not gonna knock the guy for smoking the weed, but you don't need sure as hell need to go down that cocaine trail. So Pee Wee would carry a great big uh, money bag. Like you get the old school, get the, like a canvas bag. You get it the, at the bank and it had nothing in it, but quarters. So it, held, it was like carrying around a, a, you know, a lead ball and the quarters were there because at two or three o'clock in the morning, when JYD would get the munchies, he'd send peewee down the hall to the, uh, to the, to the, the soda machine or the candy machine in the hotel, nothing was open. It ain't like today where you can call, you know, Uber eats and it'll bring your stuff over to you. Not that way. So that was the, the deal. Pee Wee always carried that big, great big bag. And I know cowboy found out about it. And so he got on Pee Wee's ass. He said, you know, you can't be feeding him Hershey's chocolate and all this other stuff at three o'clock in the morning. 
he's getting fat. He's getting out of shape. And, you know, and he was, he was, but he had more charisma. There was a situation Conrad down there in new Orleans at times, Ficky was a daily paper there. They ran a contest many, many years ago, the most famous athlete in Louisiana. And it came down to, everybody thought it was going to come down to pistol Pete Maravich, the great basketball player who played at LSU and in the NBA for years. Uh, and, uh, Archie Manning, the father of Peyton Manning and, and, uh, Eli and another one, whatever his name is. Uh, so anyhow, uh, and then the winner was junkyard dog. Wow. So if you, you go to Louisiana and you beat the quarterback of the NFL team, you beat the starting point guard of the basketball team. I would say, my friend, you're over. So JYD was definitely over, uh, that music, you know, it'd be great now because he, we came out with depending royalties for that, uh, queen song, another one bites the dust. And that was his music. And man, when they heard that music, who's going to beat that dog? Nobody going to beat that dog. So they loved him, man. Who, who dat? who dat? I heard the who dat long before. With, with JYD long before I heard it for the saints, be honest with you, who dat, who dat going to beat that dog? Nobody going to beat that dog. Okay. He hit people loved him. He gave impoverished people, whether they're black or white hope, because he would talk about his humble upbringings and he, they could relate to him and they saw him being successful, big chains around his neck and nice big rings, you know? And so it was just a, he was a, he was a once in a lifetime talent. I don't think. There's ever been an African-American talent, uh, on his level before or since at one time he was as hot as anybody. And I can tell you that he was printing money when he went to WWF on, he had the first, uh, African-American action figures. I recall. Wow. And it sold, it sold like crazy. So it's just a shame, man, that he, 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 he died with hardly anything. He fell asleep, uh, either coming home or going to his daughter's graduation. And when we, when uh, JYD was inducted into the WWE hall of fame, uh, I, I made sure that we reached out to his daughter and we had to, we had to get police and detectives and stuff like that to find her. Uh, cause she could really off the grid. She wasn't, you know, a wrestling, you know, she wasn't trying to get into business or anything, Right. but he had royalties coming. He, his royalties. That's one thing about the WWE, you, you get the, the royalty program is pretty damn solid. And so he had monies, there are monies there accrued for JYD that went to his, his next of kin, which would be on his daughter. So she was there when he went in the hall of fame, but he was a classic dude, man. Great heart, not a malicious bone in his body, really not. Uh, but he was his own worst enemy. And, uh, but he was a lovable guy. He really was. And, but I tell you, Conrad, I've been around a lot of guys, Austin's and rocks and takers and dusty roads and Ric Flair's. At one point in time, there was nobody more over with his, with his fan base than junkyard, junkyard dog, nobody. Let's keep it moving here. And let's talk a little bit about, uh, the June 5th show in Madison square garden on top at Steve Austin and the undertaker teaming up to take on Kane and mankind. It's of course a sellout 19,506 fans, 16,814 of them were paying $391,575. The reason I mention this is it's the largest gate ever in the United States for a WWF event that wasn't a pay-per-view. So bigger than any house show, bigger than any television taping, the biggest non-pay-per-view show ever in history 
that's something else, especially when you consider you're just one year away from possible bankruptcy discussions. Yeah, it was a, it was a hit. Well, we get, guys got over, you know, uh, I remember putting that car together with Vince, uh, and I know I can tell you this Austin and Taker to a lesser degree, if I recall, neither like being in tags, but we had a good story going and the title thing was all, uh, you know, it was all, 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 all rolling and interesting with Kane and mankind and nobody knew who was friends and foes and who could trust anybody. A lot of, uh, a lot of uncertainty, which is great for wrestling unpredictability, a better word probably, but, uh, you know, four of our top guys and they, they were all over and, you know, getting Mick Foley and Kane over was, was a bonus because Mick was, you know, we, as I said before, he was, we were lucky to hire him because Vince didn't want him there until he wanted to see how I could understand how it was to get my heart broken, which never happened by the way, not at least not for that. Uh, and, uh, Mick, uh, and paired up with Kane very well. It was a good thing, man. And it was, it, it, hey, the WWE's not even selling to Garden now, uh, as I understand it. I might be wrong, but I heard the holidays they didn't sell it out. That's why I want to lay up. So uh, these guys are over, and that's why I say when uh, when I hear about some of these talents talking about how great they are, why don't you go sell some tickets before you? Because uh, be, just because you're making a lot of money doesn't mean you're drawing it. Right. Some people get paid a salary basically just to stick to the, make sure they don't leave. But have they really sold the tickets to, to merit that salary? I question that. Well, there's no questioning that you guys were doing a great job with the ratings. The June 8th raw raw would do a 4.32 nitro would do a 4.03. Let's talk about that raw though. There was something on this show that really stuck out to me. You've got George Martin from the New York giants and uh, Darnell Autry from the Chicago bears. And they're here to present Mr. McMahon with the humanitarian of the year award. When Austin shows up with a black tie, uh, and jeans, but no shirt or jacket. And, uh, Martin claims that he's representing the minority athletes network and says McMahon gave less money than he promised and his check bounced twice. And then he <laughs> reveals that his favorite wrestler is Steve Austin. And of course, Austin, um, winds up picking McMahon's pockets of $1,200, gives it to the charities, calls Vince, the tightest son of a bitch in the WWF <laughs> outcomes taker with, uh, the Druids bringing a casket to the ring, but it winds up being Kane coming out of the casket. Mankind comes from the other side of the ring and they put Austin in the casket. And then Kane stands on top as he's stuck there. Uh, you're a, a sports guy. How did this association with, uh, the giants and the bears legends come to be? Well, I, I can tell you this, uh, WWE has always been very pro, uh, things like make a wish, etc. Uh, and in that New York area, uh, we did a lot of things thanks to the efforts of Susie Aitchison, who just went to the hall of fame this year. Well-deserved Susie Aitchison going into the hall of fame was as deserved as anybody that was inducted this year, in my opinion. So Susie had a good rapport with George Martin. Uh, they did a lot of charity stuff together. And so, uh, but Vince, to his credit, he was getting, he was being a heel. He didn't really, he, he, he won't acknowledge the organization and acknowledge the company's support of it, but he didn't want to, he wanted to kind of protect his heel status. So that's why the dialogue was as it was, but, uh, George Martin was a big friend of the company. I'm sure George, George is alive. He probably still is Uh great linebacker for the giants, Bill Parcells teams back in the day. So, uh, that was how that went down, but it was a legitimate award as I understand it, 
But Vince just wanted to kind of protect the Mr. McMahon side of it and not give the heel any major redeeming social qualities, which is a mark of a good heel. Without question. Let's talk about the next week's show. Uh, June 15th, raw does a 4.3 nitro does a four. You keep that momentum going June 22nd, raw does a 4.3 nitro does a 4.1. So clean sweep here for raw. Let's talk about that. June 15th raw though. Uh, Sean Michaels, according to the observer was at the WWF event for the first time since WrestleMania. Uh, of course he's there because they're doing TV in San Antonio quote. The report from those who saw him was that he was, um, mentally in better shape than he had been in a long time. And he had cut his hair and he was able to sit down and stand upright for periods of time without excruciating pain. And you may remember he goes home after WrestleMania 14 with a debilitating back problem. You can see him grimacing through the match. He's just not in good space physically, mentally, emotionally. So when you see him here, he's moving around a little better. He's got a haircut. What'd you think? Do you remember seeing Sean at TV for the first time in a long time? And, and what were people saying sort of behind the scenes about that? Yeah, he looked great. And, uh, it was, it was, uh, heartwarming to see that he, 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 he wasn't in pain all the time. I think that's the, probably the biggest issue, whether we thought he would ever come back or not. I always did. That's why I made the effort to keep in touch with him. And that's why I went to San Antonio on, I think more than one occasion to meet with him and his attorney. Uh, and you know, I was just so honest with him. He needed to have the honesty thrown at him. And I can't remember his attorney's going to skip something with nice guy. Uh, but you know, I said, you don't want your legacy to be this, that you, 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 uh, you went home and never came back because of a bad back. I mean, there's things you can do. And he said, well, I can't, you know, he got a little angry. What can I do? I, I can't, I can't, I can't move around like I used to blah, blah, blah. So well, you can when you get healthy. I said, but until then. Uh, having a guy like you in, in the locker room, in our locker room, and, and you got to understand, Sean, you, for a lot of these guys, these young guys we're trying to hire, you're the role model. You're the guy that got them interested in wrestling, uh, you know, to a large degree. They've kept, they, they pattern their game, some of these guys, after things that you do. So I said, you know, there's a lot of things you can do to help the company. And I didn't want to throw out the damn thing. Well, hey, look, by the way, we're paying you 750K a year on a weekly check. So, uh, you know, you're getting paid well and I, and I know that you'd probably want to contribute and, you know, uh, and I said, you can do a lot of good things for us. So it was great seeing him there. That was a big breakthrough for him to venture back into the, uh, to the, that atmosphere, to that environment, because at one time, Conrad, you know, it was a, when he first left after that WrestleMania you, you spoke of, uh, nobody was really sure he would ever see him again. And if we did. It might be after four years and then maybe he'll go to down South. Who knew? We didn't know a lot of unanswered questions. Well, something that wasn't unanswered is what's going to happen with the WWF programming on raw, uh, USA inks, another deal for three years here. It's reported in the June 8th observer. Talk to me about what that process looks like. I mean, once upon a time when ratings are what they are, but they're not necessarily gangbusters. You've got to be just glad to have the opportunity. Now that you're on top of the world. Are you getting a better deal? Uh, or are you very appreciative that you had a partner when you needed one? Does that relationship change when the tide turns business wise? I don't think so. Uh, the events had a lot to do with, uh, the relationship built, which with USA and, uh, Bonnie hammer was, uh, I think she was in, in the in power or was certainly involved. She was a big player there that, that, that got along well with WWE. 
uh, our, our ratings started coming back. The, the thing about it is that if you look at the big picture, Conrad, the other, the ratings that USA were, were earning, uh, on other shows that they're paying a lot of money to produce or they bought are, uh, were less than what we were earning, even when we were in a little bit of a slump when we were getting kicked our ass kicked 83 weeks in a row. Uh, but the, the, the relationship was good. That helped because here's another deal. Being in Stanford and in Connecticut is a, you know, 30 minute drive to New York city. It was almost like we we're all local in that regard. So they could see each other often. Uh, they communicated well and Vince had some good people around him in that world that, uh, also took up the slack. So we had a, we had a good relationship with the USA and, and, uh, uh, in that, in that time, because we were still delivering good ratings. And then when the ratings really started going up, you know, we were the, we we're the bull of the woods, as Dusty Rose might say. So it was, that's how that worked. And it, and it's just a staple, you know, they did, she, she fought for us. She fought for us big time to keep us on Monday nights, keep us in prime time. And, uh, so it was a, a real good, positive win-win business relationship, which seemingly are few and far between nowadays, but uh, that's what you always look for. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask about when I started to do this research is, um, something that happened very briefly called pay per listen. Uh, Meltzer would report the WWF pay per listen for the over the edge blew out the circuits because so many people ordered it at the last minute. So everyone who ordered that show will now be given the King of the ring broadcast for free. It's still sort of the infancy of the internet, but talk to me a little bit about pay per listen when you first heard about it, what Vince thought about it, just what you remember about it, because it, it does feel like something that is uh, very 1998. Yeah. And you know, I, when I saw our format and I started trying to think about this, honestly, I have very little memory of it because we must've tried it once or twice. If that, if that, you know, we did try to do radio WWF at one time and just needed a good syndicator and, and we didn't have that. So the infrastructure wasn't there. So the, the audio thing was just, we're going to sell on this occasion, JR and the King, uh, audio and whatever else, natural audio. And, uh, uh, to, if you, you know, for a cheaper price for people that just wanted to listen and not watch or wanted to save money more specifically, but I think it was a short lived deal. You know, I always loved and when my first meeting with Vince and Augusta, uh, when I was leaving w, WCW coming to WWE, we talked about the radio network. We talked about hotlines. We talked about audio. And it's funny that you and I are making, you know, doing well now doing audio. And it's funny how that all started. Of course, that was, that was preceded by my radio show. I did for a good while in Atlanta on WSB. So, uh, the audio was a big component of our discussion. It was something that we tried, but for whatever reason, again, it could have been infrastructure wise and not having the personnel to that knew what they were doing to manage it. But I thought it was a decent idea. It, it almost like a paid podcast, like the, uh, paywall or something, but it, it didn't, it just didn't last long. No, it didn't. And it's a shame too, because, uh, it could have continued, but I mean, it was maybe a little bit ahead of its time at the end of the June 22nd raw, which is the go home edition. Uh, for the King of the Ring show, Austin is going to do a promo here, challenging Kane to come out, and Kane's going to come out and make some sort of motion, and then all kinds of red liquid uh, comes from the cage to give the impression that it's raining blood on Steve Austin. Uh, talk to us about the magic behind that. What was the liquid? How was it put together? This feels 
uh, like it's uh, a precursor for Gangrel's bloodbaths. Yeah, probably probably was the idea borrowed from that deal. I think it was uh, obviously water based. I'm not really versed on all that stuff. I, uh, they had a good prop crew there uh, that that did all that stuff, and uh, I would think that was probably a Russo idea. You know, uh, seems sounds like something he'd come up with, but it was it was a very uh, viable graphic. I mean, a video rather the picture was very, very uh, strong, but I'm sure it was just water-based and, uh, because you can't make, you got to make sure it's not, if it gets in your eyes or your mouth or you swallow, whatever, you're not going to poison somebody or blind somebody. So that, that kind of deal, it was very, uh, it was very graphic, but the gravity of the angle leading into first blood, et cetera, et cetera, was, uh, that's what it called for. So it was, it was a, uh, it was a, uh, it was very effective. And so if Russo did come up with, it, I think he did, uh, hats off to him. One of the things that, uh, doesn't get talked about enough is the fact that the Friday before the pay-per-view Austin goes into the hospital in Houston, he's got a staph infection in his right elbow, which of course results in a super high fever, allegedly as high as 104 degrees. So that's clearly not something you want to mess around with. And, uh, they wanted to have him hospitalized through Monday. But we know that's not going to be the case. He's got a pay-per-view to get to. Mm-hmm. Um, allegedly, the bad elbow bruise took place at the television tapings at either San Antonio or Houston. And by Wednesday, he had a mild fever. He's booked on some smaller shows in Corpus Christi and Tyler. And um, he's in great pain and has to be taken backstage after the show. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Title Transference aired October 27, 2004. Director James Marshall, writers Todd Slavkin, Darren Swimmer. I really like this episode, and I'm surprised that you don't like it as much as you thought you did. I actually respect your opinion more than I respect my own in general. (laughs) (laughs) When you say things are good and I check them out, they are. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen. When you hear this is happening to your top star, your pay-per-view main event, do you start making backup plans? Like, Hey, what if we lose our main event? Here's what we could pivot to. Or did you always think hook or crook? He'll be there. The latter hook or crook. He's going to make it, you know, Taker was hurt that week too. Taker had a bad foot, uh, bone spurs, et cetera, et cetera. Hey man, they're war horses. They had worked their asses off in this and through the territory system, uh, to get to this level of a global superstar, not a territory superstar, but a global superstar. And they damn sure were not going to relinquish it very much. Uh, it reminds me of that commercial years ago that Clint Eastwood did about his guns. You know, you'll, you'll take my guns or maybe Charlton has somebody said, you'll take my guns through my cold dead hands or something. You'll take my spot through my cold dead hands. It's kind of the theory I was thinking. And, uh, but we, we didn't have, a, I don't know that we had a plan B those things are, you know, that, that would have been, that's the wrestling business. The great thing about it is there are some interchangeable parts. Some are less than obviously, 
we'd have come up with something, but I don't know what it would have been at this moment in time. Nobody's going to replace Austin. You can substitute for him. You're not going to replace him. But we always, we always thought that he's going to make it. And he was adamant that he was going to make it. And so, uh, the fever broke, but he, he competed and performed with a lot of, a lot of pain. And that, uh, I remember he looked like the goddamn bionic man coming out there for the, in that 98, uh, King of the ring, uh, match with Kane, big knee braces, as we all remember now his elbows all screwed up. So Steve Austin really was the bionic man on that night. And he just gutted it out and, and got it, got his job done and got the work done. So, uh, no, no plan B Conrad, but we just had belief that, you know, he's going to saddle up and go. Let's talk about the undertaker. You mentioned he had a, a foot injury. Meltzer would call it an ankle injury. He says it was a cracked angle, uh, a cracked ankle, which he thinks uh, resulted in some, uh, bone chips. And it was all from uh, an angle that was shot on location for the June 16th taping in Austin, Texas. Now you may remember, this is where he was at Paul bear's house, uh, tearing it up. And, uh, that's before it airs on June 22nd. And there wasn't a noticeable spot on camera where he was injured. But ironically, during this uh, angle, Paul Bear also suffers an ankle injury, which uh, Meltzer freestyles is when the Undertaker was throwing furniture around. Something landed on his leg, uh, although of course his role is going to be more limited than Undertaker. Uh, he's still not going to uh, appear to manage Kane on the shows for the rest of the week, and they're going to use the television beating as the storyline excuse. So when your two top dogs go down. With injuries, you would think this would be cause for concern, but them being war horses, maybe not so much. I do want to mention something else that made the observer mess with right. There've been some reports going around, including some fairly significant press in Japan about the world wrestling federation being interested in buying the Minnesota Vikings. There has been to the best of my knowledge, no mainstream media report on this in the United States. What we do know is that a company meeting on June 12th, McMahon told some of the higher ups that he was interested. One would think the Vikings, since they would go for a few hundred million, would be way out of McMahon's league. Although McMahon could head up a group of investors. Officially, the word from Titan is only to the extent that there has been dialogue. Well, obviously, everybody listening to this knows you're a big football fan, and we know that the XFL is a thing back then and will be again soon. When did you first hear the, the rumor about Vince trying to buy the Vikings or did it happen? What do you remember about it? Chat me up. He, uh, Vince, I'm oh, sorry. Uh, Vince talked to me about that because he knew and sometimes begrudgingly of my love for football. You know, he, he, Vince had a good deal for, I had a great deal with him in the sense that I didn't have any hobbies. I, he knew I need to have a, a time to stick my head above water occasionally. So he would fly me and Chan if she wanted to go to the OU games when we we're living in Connecticut. So I would go to OU games on Vince's dime, uh, fly first class, took great care of me. I'm very appreciative of that. So he knew I was a football mark, for lack of a better term. And so he talked to me about it and not to give my blessing or just a general, because you know, he had not kept up with football. But the, I don't think it ever got past. Uh, the, uh, uh, talking stage Conrad, I don't think it ever got really, no major meetings with the Vikings or, you know, he may have had a casual meeting with some investors or something, but I think bottom line is that, uh, it was just a, a talking thing. They were on sale. They were on sale. They were for sale. And, uh, so, but he, 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 I don't know the seriousness of it. Mm, 
long shot at best, but there was dialogue. Isn't it amazing too, to think what if though, and I know that's a weird game to play sometimes, but if he had bought the Vikings, odds are pretty good. The XFL would have never existed, right? Exactly. Yeah. I can't, I can't see that happening. It's uh, fascinating to me. Well, let's talk about the show. Let's get into King of the ring. 1998. You watched it this week for the first time. Is this the first time you've seen it since it happened? Uh, all the way through. Yes, absolutely. I'm sure a lot of people are watching it this week for the very first time. Uh, this is, um, going to set a record for Pittsburgh, as we mentioned earlier, and, and you guys have been there a lot. SummerSlam 95, uh, which is a rematch from the ladder match at WrestleMania 10. Uh, the NWA actually held a record for many years with the great American bash in 87, which is pretty amazing because it's always, at least to me, been a more historical WWF city. Let's get into, uh, uh, the first match is the headbangers teaming up with Takamichi Noku to take on Dick to go men's Tao and, uh, Funaki. It's an unannounced match. Uh, feels a little thrown together based on, you know, they didn't really promote it too much, but it got two and a quarter stars in the observer and uh, lots of interesting characters here. It does feel like the headbangers are maybe a little out of place, but, uh, what'd you think of the match watching it this week for the first time in a long time? Good opener. Good opener. I thought a lot of action, uh, good spots and a feel good finish. Good opener in that respect for that era. Uh, the Kayatai kids are, did a good job. You know, uh, I guess good to see Taka back doing things with uh, uh, New Japan. He's still around. But he was a hell of a little hand. He was, he was part of the star of that group, in my opinion. But uh, Funaki, who now lives in San Antonio, mentioned that earlier, uh, he's, uh, he's, he's, he stayed in the States. So he's a, I'm assuming he's, still, he's a citizen by now. I'm not real sure, but. Yeah, that uh, men's tail was was a good hand. He kind of disappeared, I believe. And Dick to go, Mr. Barnett's favorite carryout. Oh my God, I love the Dick to go. Uh, he was uh, he was a good hand too. So but I think Funaki and and, and Taka were the two stars of that quartet. And uh, but it was a good a good opener. Did everything you needed to do. Get the people up. Get them to you know react. And get them a little invested in the match because the match is not star laden, but it was talent laden. All those guys could work and they, they did a nice job for the opener. We haven't talked much about the headbangers. Uh, I gotta admit, I kind of dug the headbangers. I thought they had good matches and were maybe underrated a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, whose idea was the headbangers? Is that a, is that a Russo gimmick? I think it was, I think it was actually Jim Cornette's idea. Really? I think Cornette, uh, uh, created the headbangers. If I, if I recall correctly, I could stand be corrected, but. Uh, yeah, they, uh, they, they did a good job. They, they're good guys. So they worked hard. Glenn Ruth, Chaz Warrington, uh, reliable, you know, talk about reliability. They always are on time. They're always at work. They're always working hard. You know, they should have probably got a little bit more of a push than they did, uh, as in a, t- just as a straight tag team. Uh, but they were, uh, they were good guys and they probably don't get the credit they deserve. Uh, as a tag team in, in WWE and they meshed very well with those four Japanese fellas. And, uh, they ended up, like I said, they had a nice opener, but they're, they're a good team. They were a good team. And probably looking back at it, hindsight, uh, there could have been more mileage achieved with them if they had been given the ball a little bit more prominently, but that didn't happen. Talk to me a little bit about gimmicks. Do you think that those guys, had they been given a different gimmick may have had 
I guess what I'm trying to get to is did the headbanger gimmick limit their upside? Because it does feel like you never hear anybody say anything bad about either one of the guys, as you said, reliable, good Mm -hmm. worker, things like that. Were they a victim of a gimmick that just sort of pigeonholed them into, well, that's where they are. Perhaps bad answer for you, but perhaps, uh, many didn't have a problem with it. And I certainly did not. I think the main thing that some older school guys, even older than me that were on the staff, uh, couldn't understand how a guy, a talent in wrestling, how a wrestler could, a male wrestler could get over wearing a skirt. So silly as that, but, uh, I, it could have, it could have hampered them a little bit. I liked their gimmick. I liked it. It fit their lifestyle. It, it is current with the times, uh, you know, isn't, the, isn't that weird though that, that guys stuff. would think that, you know, just, I mean, we're, this is a world where Roddy Piper exists. I mean, I know, I know makes no sense, but they were Roddy Piper. Right. So, uh, but yeah, it, it could have been that it could have been, uh, uh, some of that Conrad without a doubt, but personally for me, I, 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 I liked the gimmick. I had no issues with it whatsoever. I thought they, they played it off well. But we could have done a better job of positioning them to where they didn't come off and taking consideration that their their gimmick was a, needed some explanation. They could have probably got over a whole lot more if there had been a, a, a nice string of vignettes done to explain what a headbanger is. You know, some some bitch in uh, you know uh, in Muskogee or you know or Dothan might not know. Right. So we need to. I don't think we did a good job of explaining that to them. All right, let's get to the next match here. We've got, um, well, before we get to the next match, we should talk about the fact that Sable came out looking as Ric Flair would say, as only she can look, uh, really Meltzer, did, did, yeah, it was, yeah. Hard, it was, uh, like a sore Peter that was hard to beat, uh, <laughs> yeah. Meltzer would write before the next match, Sable walked to the ring without tipping over, which, uh, I don't know why, but Meltzer really took a lot of shots at Sable back then. And she introduces Vince McMahon, who of course comes out with his stooges who are going to become big characters on the show. Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe as Sable goes to leave Pat Pat's her on the ass and Sable <laughs> turns around and slaps Patterson. And, um, you make a remark about, uh, him being in a place he's never been in before or something like that. And then McMahon does an interview and he talks about how Kane was going to win the title. Uh, and at, at ringside wearing an Austin three sixteen shirt was heavyweight boxer, Michael Moore cheering McMahon, apparently not realizing what was going on. Uh, but you don't really acknowledge Michael Moore being in the crowd. Uh, McMahon though, is going to be criticized by Meltzer. He would say, uh, McMahon did easily the worst interview since he's been playing this role as he came off like a green independent manager, insulting the fans and went on far too long, trying to get the cheap heat. And when the show was over, it was clear due to injuries of undertaker and Austin, that they were adding matches and segments to kill time as the show ended about 10 minutes early, even after adding two new matches and they showed more replays of Patterson being slapped by Sable. Is this accurate that you guys were just trying to kill time because you knew two of your, your dogs were, were down and you were going to have to make up some time somewhere. Yeah. Uh, we needed, we, the show was short. Uh, the show was formatted and it was short on time, no matter if we added or not added, we, it was short on time. So, and the other thing is that we weren't sure how long, uh, Steve could work in the main event because of the staff of the, uh, his staff infection had no idea. 
And of course, then you got Taker situation. We got him in a hell of a cell match with a bad foot, ankle, whatever. So, you, you, but the match, the show overall was underwritten in that regard. So a couple of matches were added and, uh, they weren't like they were just bullshit matches. They were good matches. So, uh, you know, the matches that were added were, were solid matches, but the show was underwritten and we had to, we had to, we had to, uh, cover our bets a little bit, hedge our bets to with Steve and Taker both being banged up. So, uh, that's where that was. I think Vince's promo, I listened to it again. You know, like I said, uh, yesterday and today, he might've tried too hard to get personal with the audience. It might've been that he was trying too hard to generate some heat, which he felt like was needed. And, it, and I can't disagree with that. You can't get too much heat as a rule can, but very rarely. And he was being a villain, but I think he might've tried too hard on that one. And there's where he could have had a filter and said, Vince, I don't think you need to say this, or you already made that point twice or whatever. I don't know. It was his worst interview. It's all subjective anyway. And, and Meltzer's got his own opinions and he has a right to them. Uh, I didn't, I wasn't turned off after going back and hearing it again the last couple of days by any stretch. What I suggest folks do when they're here at our show, go watch it. Right. You make the call. You make the call. That's easy. And you got an opinion too. And your opinion, folks, is just as valid as Conrad's or mine and even Dave Meltzer. That's fair to say. You know, I think a lot of times people get caught up on, you know, what they read or what they hear, and that becomes the gospel. But so much of this is just sort of your opinion, right? Yeah, that's all. It's a take. It's a take. If you and I are driving down the road and we're going to, somebody says, somebody's riding with us, or we got a driver and an Uber and we're drinking. Hey, what you boys football fans? Yep, we sure are. Who's the best college football program in America? They'll say, so, well, that'd be uh, Alabama, Oklahoma. Well, you know, that's, it's some team with it ends with a vowel. Right. You can say that we'd agree on that, but it's an opinion. Right. But that's kind of what Meltzer does for a living. He, he provides a, a seasoned expert opinion, a take on, on the business. So, but I didn't, I wasn't offended by the interview whatsoever because the, the thing with Patterson Briscoe's animation an, being animated, it was always entertaining as hell to me. And then when Pat uh, slapped uh, or hit Sable on the backside, let me tell you something. I did hear before the show that she was instructed to, because she didn't know how to work. She didn't know how to throw a punch. Right. She didn't know how to th- do a slap. So she slapped the ever loving shit out of Patterson and it popped. And so, uh, and to me, of course, misery loves company. I also like America's funniest videos to watch fat women slip on ice, but that's me. I'm sadistic. Uh, I thought it was just hilarious. So I think that that little interaction with Patterson and Sable on the exit, if, if anything, if you thought the interview was bad with Vince, that kind of salvaged that segment a little bit to me. No, I wouldn't disagree. I think that's what people remember, but what you may remember most about this show is I believe this is the show where Pat found out that his, um, Longtime partner, Louie yeah. passed away from a heart attack and Louie was a staple with the company for a long time. And obviously being Pat's partner, you were probably pretty familiar and friendly with Louie. What can you tell us about Louie and then, uh, how you guys got this unfortunate news? I actually think Louie passed away just a few days before this Conrad, I believe, cause I, I want to say, it seems like we were in Maryland at one of the little towns in Maryland doing TV. Uh, and, uh, but nonetheless, you're right about the, the basic timeline. 
Louie was a, was a good, Louie was a barber hairstylist, uh, but he had a real successful barber shop in San Francisco. And, uh, that's, and he and Pat lived in San Francisco for, you know, Pat worked that territory for Rory Shire for, you know, well over a decade, probably 15 years. Uh, so, but Louie had a, because he was Pat's significant other, Louie had a great mind for wrestling. Louie was a sharp guy and he understood the business. He understood, uh, all the little nuances because Pat would share that with him. You know, they, and then of course the, the phone would ring and I remember it's always some agent calling it. We'd be sitting around having a, a drink or eating. I was there at their house at least one or two days a week when Jan flew, uh, we were, she was based out of uh, Philadelphia. So she would take a train from, uh, Connecticut down to Philly and catch her work, flight to go to work. And then the uh, same deal. She'd come back to Philly, then take the flight home to or train home to Connecticut. Uh, but I was there, I was like a permanent America's guest and Bruce, your, our, your other, our other podcast partner, Bruce was there a lot, but Bruce was married and he's home. Like a husband should be more often than not. And I was not, I was married, but my wife was gone. So I, I really enjoyed being around, uh, Louie, great cook. He made this great chimichurri sauce for uh, the stuff, great spaghetti sauce. And I remember Jan loved their dog, buddy, they had a big old kind of a mixed breed, look like a German shepherd and something else, big dog. And buddy loved Jan and Jan loved buddy. And they didn't want buddy eating treats, but she would bring these little treats over for buddy. Every time she came over and, and Pat would grumble and bitch moan and, and Lou just kind of tolerate it, you know, cause, uh, but buddy was like their son. So, so I'm not being facetious either. People that got pets, they love understand that, sure. but Louie was a good man. And but Louis loved to give you his philosophy of things, life, all kinds of stuff. I remember sitting around when I got hired, I didn't have a specific stuff to do. Uh, and I was really getting bored and he said, well, you just need to chill because sooner than later with your, with your skill set, he said, I can tell you, Vince already likes you. You're going to be really, really busy long, much sooner than later. And lo and behold, he was exactly right. Yes, you were, uh, in the, uh, King of the ring semifinale, we've got, um, Ken Shamrock and Jeff Jarrett. They go five minutes and 29 seconds. It gets one star in the observer. Meltzer would say the crowd wasn't into this match at all. The two didn't miss any moves. So there was nothing wrong with the match, but they didn't have time to build and they had no heat going in. Shamrock nearly killed himself when he did a running hurricane Rana and in turning over appeared to hit his head on the map. And then clamped on the ankle lock for the submission, not the best match. And, uh, this is a, an interesting time for Jeff Jarrett because it feels like he's got a big presentation. He's got a manager. He's, you know, got a catchphrase. He's got pyro. Uh, but for whatever reason, it's not connecting with the audience. Uh, what do you remember about this match? And, and what'd you think? I've always believed that two talents are over that, uh, if you're restricted on time, you can still, uh, I don't want to say salvage a good match. You can tell a good story. If you're both over, if you got something going for you, uh, when the bell rings to start your contest, uh, and, and, you know, Kenny was upward getting going up, but double J had not gotten quote unquote over at that time. So there was not a great interest in, uh, in that situation, his presentation I think he had Colonel Parker with him at that time. I don't know what, what name he, I can't remember what name he used, but nonetheless, uh, he was a talented son of a gun. 
and a hell of a hand this day. Tennessee Lee, I believe is what he called himself. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Something stereotypical Southern horseshit. Sure. You know, you know, uh, so, uh, that's the mentality there sometimes, but, uh, that's like Vince wanted me to wear a, uh, a, uh, like, you know, his jacket, a Porter Wagner used to wear on a TV show that had those wagon wheels on it and rhinestones and all that shit. Yeah. Uh, I got, that was proposed to me one time. I said, I got to, I'll wear the hat all you want. I got to liking the hat eventually, but I said, I ain't going to come on. It's, I had no credibility Vince. I'm look like a fucking clown. I want to get these guys over. We need to get pounding over. We're not drawing any money. Right. So he backed off that idea, but Colonel, I don't think that the audience ever accepted that combination in a serious way. It's not an indictment on either guy. It just didn't click at that point in time. Now, uh, you know, Jeff finally got, uh, over when he, when he started affiliating with road dog and road dog was the star of that combination because he had more charisma than Jeff did. Great talker. Uh, the roadie, it was great. And Brian's been still contributing there all, all this time. So, uh, it just, they weren't over. So you, if you got t- two talents that are not over, it wouldn't make a shit Conrad contrary to what Meltzer might say if they had 15 minutes, right? They still ain't going to get up. They, they're not going to get the people emotionally invested because they're, they're trying to get over and they're not. So that's kind of where we were there. I didn't think the match sucked. It wasn't a great match. And because again, it shows that the crowd can have such a predominant influence on our perception of, of, a, of a, of a, of a, uh, performance. And you know, they worked like, like the Meltzer said, they didn't miss any moves. Right. It's just, nobody cared. That's I didn't shame. think also maybe I, I've, I've thought of this before too. I'm not so sure that people really thought Jeff could beat Shamrock. Right. And that probably had a little bit to play into it too. Yeah. I mean, when you've positioned him to be the, you know, America's badass, the world's most dangerous man, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine that the, uh, fake ass country singer is going to beat him up. Correct. Uh, in the other semifinale, we've got Rocky Maivia getting a win over Dan Severn here in four minutes and 25 seconds. Meltzer hated it. He gave it a negative half star. He called it awful. So it also had no heat. What do you think? This is not, uh, the best match for either guy, but this match sort of sums up Dan Severn's WWF career. He had, you know, some success on the independence. And of course he was with you guys for a little while, but for whatever reason, it never really clicked. And it felt like it didn't really click in this match either. No, no, you're right. Um, Meltzer didn't like Dan Severn taking a pinfall loss, uh, because it was going to hurt him in Japan. And, 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 and I, I really appreciate Dave's, uh, uh, loyalty, his dedication, his fandom of all things, Japan, and it has been that way for years. Uh, I've learned a lot about Japanese wrestling from Dave, but the world doesn't start or end in Japan, uh, nor does it start or end here in America. But, you know, sometimes I think that Japanese stuff, uh, is given more credence, more, more weight than maybe it deserves. Not sure. It's in my opinion. I like it. I enjoy doing their matches. Uh, but I think sometimes uh, Dave's a little bit biased as it relates to the Japanese thing. Uh, Dan Severn was a guy that I hired and I'm proud that I hired him. I just saw him at uh, Starcast in Vegas. Yep. He's a class act Conrad. He's a class act. I don't know how your dealings was with him in Vegas. Phenomenal. I, yeah. It, he's, a, he's educated, grounded, level-headed, 
uh, amazing uh, amateur background. Uh, and we all knew, we'd watched, we were a lot of MMA fans, including myself, and this knew that, that Kenny Shamrock and Dan were one and one against each other. It just seemed to be too, uh, predictable that they would meet in the, um, finals. Plus, I don't think that any of us were overly confident that they had the chemistry to perform a worked pro wrestling match. Uh, to any large degree to, to be the king of the ring. It just didn't feel right. And I think that, uh, you know, you, you got to understand too, that there was all kinds of, you know, Shamrock was way outnumbered out there. You know, D'Lo Brown comes in with that silly gimmick I gave him about the chest protector needed the big frog splash. Uh, he had all the nation guys in and out around. Uh, and by the way, he did the honors for the rock. So I, and of course they well, he wasn't the rock then he, yeah, he was the, he was Rocky Maivia, but the same guy. Right. So I don't think it, uh, and a Meltzer thought that, well, this really ruined his career internationally. Danny Severn, to my knowledge has still been booked since then a lot, uh, a lot. Yeah. So apparently it didn't ruin his career as was written there, but, uh, that's kind of what we went with. And, 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 uh, the, the, we wanted, we knew what we wanted in the finals, any tournament, anytime you see a tournament book folks. The way pro wrestling tournaments are booked, you go to the finals and you might even say you go to the winner. Who do you want to win the tournament? And then how do you work it backwards? You work it all the way back to the very first match of the tournament. And we wanted to shamrock and the rock to be in the finals. They had a little issue, uh, on TV that has some history and they had good chemistry. They, they, they like working with each other. Kenny had no issue selling for the rock because you know, he, he admired the rocks, athleticism, et cetera, et cetera. And of course the rock had no fear of nothing. Uh, and he, he could make anybody look good about more often than not. So we knew that was our final. And then unfortunately, Kenny didn't have a plan, have a place in that, but he's a class act. He was, a, he just didn't have, Kenny never had the overwhelming television charisma that the audience demands more often than not. But boy, as a human being, we never had a guy in our locker room that had, a, was a better human being than Dan Severn. Let's go to the next match. Uh, I guess we should mention that Shamrock, um, had to beat Mark Henry and comma, uh, to get here. Jeff Jarrett had to beat Farouk and Mark Merrow to get here. The rock had to beat Vader and triple H to get here. Mm. Severn had to beat D'Lo and Owen Hart to get here. So that's sort of the background of how we got here. I do want to mention that, um, Dan Severn did an interview on the internet around this time and. When he was asked if there was more than a professional rivalry between himself and Ken Shamrock, he said something like, uh, he doesn't like anyone who isn't natural. And he went on to say, let's just say he doesn't get his body by just working out. But then again, most of the bigger guys in wrestling didn't. And when he brought up about Shamrock admitting to doing things in the past, Severin said something like, I don't know if it's so much in the past. So he's sort of tongue in cheek saying, Hey, he's on steroids guys. Does that make its way to the office? What do you guys think about Severin doing an interview like that? Well, I wasn't advised to talk about the steroid situation concerning the, the, the legacy of steroids in the WWF back in the day. Uh, but you know, he, he expressed his opinion and, uh, we thought, well, you know, it's probably just going to add more fuel to the fire when they do finally work. Cause that was a plan coming in when we hired. 
at the, some, when we both got it, we got them both hired. We had de definite talk about doing a Severin and Shamrock program, but just not in the finals of the King of the Ring. Right. So, uh, but no, Danny, Danny and, uh, Danny, Danny's very outspoken, but Danny's honest. He wasn't trying to stir the shit as much as he was answering a question and gave an honest answer as he saw it. So at that point, uh, you know, you hope that, well, maybe they'll add a little log to that fire. And if we finally get to Shamrock and, and Severn, people want to see it. I know this sounds crazy, but you worked in talent relations for a long time. So I've got to ask, did you guys ever have some sort of coaching with a PR person or yourself or anything like that about, okay, guys, if you're doing an interview and something like this comes up, here's a couple of key phrases or go-to statements you can slide to. So you don't put yourself or the company in a bad position. Uh, honestly, no, I'm sure they do today. I would think, you know, we we didn't have the size staff that, uh, the talent relations department has now and all the players involved performance center, et cetera, et cetera. We didn't have that big a staff, you know, uh, so we didn't have the bodies to go around and I'm thinking it's a great idea, but you know, we, it's, we saw something, the internet was not nearly as prominent as it is now, of course. obviously, yeah. gosh. So we didn't have any uh, official meetings about it. You just hope the guys would use their common sense and their, and, and their logic when they did a, an interview. And a lot of times the interviews we, we set up, you know, with a, uh, a newspaper in the local market, whatever, but we didn't have that many problems with it. And quite frankly, uh, other than the missing the steroid issue, which you can't really run from, you just don't want to bring it back up. Right. You can't sweep it under the rug. Just, let's just not bring it up as a topic of conversation. But I don't, I don't remember talking to, uh, I remember talking to Dan and, and you know, we, we, he, that he just was a matter of fact with it. He wasn't like, well, Kenny, I don't like Kenny. He, never that. Right. He just was a matter of fact and answering the question. And so it's kind of hard to get pissed off at him when he's probably telling the truth. Let's get to the next match here. We've got uh, Brian Christopher teaming up with Scott Taylor. Uh, of course we know what that's going to become one day and they're going to take on Al snow and head. Uh, that's right. That's real here. Uh, the stipulations are if snow and head lose, then snow has to leave the WWF and, um, yeah, uh, this is really the first time we see, uh, Christopher and Taylor on national TV like this. Of course, we know they're going to go on to be too cool. Uh, what'd you think of their first outing like this? And, uh, most importantly, what'd you think of the finish? And, and let me mention that. Lawler's involved here and head is an active participant. A, a, a head, head is at the mannequin head was Al Snow's tag team partner. It is. And, and they find a way, I know what you're thinking. Well, that's fucking ridiculous. How can you pin a head? Well, they thought of that. Uh, Brian Christopher gets a bottle of head and shoulder shampoo. Uh, probably the head had dandruff. I don't know. And, and he puts head on top of the bottle and then covers the shoulders of head and shoulders, the bottle of shampoo and Lawler counts three because, uh, well, inanimate objects can't kick out uh, negative two stars. And, and, and you even acknowledge in commentary that this is a travesty to have this on television, which is probably the first time you've just outright admitted, boy, this sucks. what do you yeah. think? I thought it sucked. And, and you know, Wrestling fans are smarter than some of the administration and every company that I've worked for are given credit for being. 
uh, omnipotent bookers sometimes look down at the wrestling audience, like they're peons, piss ants or whatever, and they don't have any brains. I, I, that infuriates me to have that dialogue with somebody. Uh, it was embarrassment. It was a lousy creative idea. And so, and, and sometimes, you know, Vince's deal that he would say face or try to save face for his writers, not, not emasculate them. Cause I had a problem with that sometimes I was, uh, you know, well, it was a let me up segment. All the shows too heavy, heavy, meaning dramatic, whatever. Uh, so it was a let me up segment, a little comic relief. I understand that concept and I don't disagree with the concept. It was just crappy entertainment and, uh, it just was ill-conceived. And I basically said as much on the air, which did not, I don't think I got any Christmas gifts that year from the, uh, writing staff. I mean, it sucked. It's one of the worst things you've called. Uh, I yeah, guess we should mention though, that Al snow came up with the head gimmick while he's in ECW and a few months prior to this, uh, it was one of the hotter things, even a month prior to this in may, he headlined a, an ECW pay-per-view. I think it was called WrestlePalooza against Shane Douglas. Uh, I think that one was in Marietta. Um, he gets over in a major way with this gimmick and now he's on TV here and well, he's not in the main event against the world champion. He's against Brian Christopher and Scott Taylor. And, uh, his head is his tag team partner. And they put it with shampoo chat me up. Why did WWE take something that was hot in ECW and essentially shit on it? Boy, I, I, I wish I'd give you a really insightful, intuitive answer. Uh, the WWE has had an issue over the years of being somewhat resistant in accepting proven gimmicks, proven uh, personas that were developed elsewhere. And they change them when they come to WWE. And I don't understand why you're always going to own the, you're going to own the talent's name while they're under contract that you got that they signed that away. But then when you go and start changing the names, that means you, you know, you can't, you can't use that name when you leave that you got, uh, all this, this, uh, <clears throat> exposure on. So, uh, I don't know the answer to that it, to me. Is it ego? Could be ego is it insecurity. Is there, are there legal ramifications on that stuff? There might be on the name, but not on a presentation. The head thing got over Al snow created head, the mannequin head. The, the head, the inference to, uh, you know, fellatio. <laughs> that's, that's what it was, right? Yeah, it is. It's just, you know, you're the voice of our childhood and you just drop fellatio on us. I'm going to laugh. Sorry. It's all right. Uh, I can't spell it, but I know what it means. <laughs> <laughs> so it got over. And so, yeah, why don't you, but then we, meaning myself and other people over there at the time, we aren't happy with that on its own. We've got to change it. Why do we have to change it? I don't know the answer to that. It's, just, it's not, it doesn't make any sense to change it. That's like, uh, Kurt Henning's son has never been able to use the word Henning. What you get, you, you let uh, the flare on TV, right? You got, uh, other second generation guys, but you know, uh, Henning doesn't make it, which makes no sense. 
so there's a selective process is my point in saying this. And I don't know what the, what the, the answer is. It just seems to be, uh, misguided thoughts and, and, uh, it almost reeks of insecurity to me, but they got the, Al got the gimmick over. They sold merchandise. And of course, in that defiant 18 to 34, 18 to 49 male demographic, if you can talk about head in a public environment and not get slapped or arrested, it seems like it's pretty cool for them. And that's what it was. Talk to me a little bit about that. We're talking about the differences, you know, and you know what this guy's allowed to do versus that guy's allowed to do. I feel like we're tiptoeing a little bit. Is this all Vince or is this someone else? No, it's Vince. That's Vince. Uh, he may say he's just uncomfortable with something and give that challenge to the creative staff or the agents or whatever to get an idea. But, but the beginning of that conversation and that action starts and ends with him. So for whatever reason, you know, uh, it's like he used to say, you know, you can't be half pregnant. You either got to go all the way with it or not. He he said that to me a zillion times, seemingly bunch, but on this deal, I don't understand. Uh, it's selective. It's really selective. And I, I, it just amazes me. It still amazes me at names that are changed. Yet talents coming to WWE now that had great names internationally, uh, you know, Finn Balor, new name. Why? Well, we want to own it. Okay. So, uh, you know, but the thing that people forget is that if you come with another name in WWE and you sign a contract while you are in under contract with the company, the WWE controls the right to that name, whether it be your real name or not, because you're under contract, they manage that name. They manage that intellectual property. So, uh, I just, there was always protection there, but again, so it may not be all legal. It just may be egocentric and, and, uh, you know, that nothing exists outside the, the, the umbrella of WWE, which as they are proving now, that's an AEW is proving that and, and ring of honor and all these other places. That ain't true anymore. There are, are other games in town whether people want to admit it in WWE or not. They're just, and fans like that, give them a choice. But I, I never, th- I thought Al got shortchanged in that deal. And as I said before, another show, Al's a very fundamentally sound guy. He came, became one of our best coaches. He's doing a great job right now in OVW in Louisville, where he owns that company now, bought it from Danny Davis. So Al had a lot of skills and, uh, but we, I think we cut short the head thing. And nobody likes to have get sh- cut short in the middle of head. It just it never works. Yeah, no doubt. Let's get to the next match. That's X-Pac and Owen Hart. X-Pac gets the win in eight and a half minutes. Um, Mark Henry does a little interference. He's going to come out and splash X-Pac. Of course, X-Pac and Owen Hart are both part of the Nation of Domination. China starts arguing with Henry. Obviously, Vader comes out, does the big body block on Henry. Uh, and then Vader takes a tumble himself doing it. While it's going on, China gets in the ring, gives Owen a DDT. The ref turns around. X Pac gets the pin. Two and a half stars. Meltzer liked it, said the wrestling was good, but he said uh, the match had no heat. He felt like the crowd was not really into this one. What do you think of the match? You haven't seen this one in a long time. It's a rematch, believe it or not, from King of the Ring '94. Back then, Owen beat the one-two-three kid on his way to winning the tournament. And their brief feud is going to end after this match here. Two all-time greats in the ring, bell to bell. Uh, but the match was uh, 
I don't know, maybe a little disappointing. Was it overbooked or, or what was your opinion? Well, it was added on late. There was no bill to it. Uh, it's hard to go back to a 94 return, a match that was returned for 94 and 98. Right. Uh, this didn't work. Mr. Frazier, Ali, it don't work. Uh, and, but both those guys, Owen and Sean Waltman, uh, X-Pac one, two, three kid, whatever. Uh, one of my, two of my favorite workers, two of my favorite guys. I love both those guys. Uh, and, uh, you know, Sean's got his podcast going, he's straightened up his life and he's doing, he's doing well. I'm proud of him. I love him, but nobody came to see that match. He had no advertising, had no promotion, had no advance for nothing. It just dropped out of, out of thin air. And here it is because again, the show was a little bit underwritten. We had injury issues when needed the time and there's no, anybody that should not have any problem saying that, well, under normal circumstances, the match between Sean Waltman and Owen Hart would have been anything but ec- excellent unless it's cold and there's no story and it's not featured the match. This show was about three things. It was about the new King of the ring. Number two is about the hell in a cell. And number three is about the, the first blood. And I'm not so sure that when it's all said and done that the, the number one and number two didn't, didn't trade places because the hell in a cell became, you know, immortal in that respect. Sorry, Hulk. Yeah, this is a, a bit of a one match show, but we're not there yet. Let's keep it going. An unannounced match. Again, the new age outlaws are going to get a win over the midnight express to retain the tag titles, nine minutes and 54 seconds. Uh, the midnight express here, this is the new midnight express. Uh, you may remember that this is, uh, uh, well, maybe not the best idea they've ever had, mm-hmm. uh, but, but they are acknowledged as being the NWA tag team champions, even though the NWA gimmick had at this point not been acknowledged, uh, but they do acknowledge that, uh, Billy and Bart were former wrestling brothers. So. Of course, Billy Gunn, part of the New Age Outlaws. Bart Gunn, now part of the Midnight Express with Bob Holly. Uh, Jim Cornette here is involved, and in, you and I have never really talked about this, but I know he's a huge Midnight Express fan, being part of that legendary trio. He had to be a big NWA fan, but God, this sucked. And when did Cornette know it sucked? Was he for it until it happened and then he wasn't for it? What do you remember about the new Midnight Express? I don't know when we'll talk about him again. Yeah, cold, cold match again. It wasn't the midnight. It wasn't the midnight express, right? It was Bob Holly and Bart Gunn. <laughs> and, and, and so the, for, uh, for us to saddle, uh, two guys are both tough, fundamentally sound dudes. I mean, two son of bitches that if you come hell or high water, they're going to be at work. A lot of respect for Bart Gunn and for Bob Holly, but my goodness, you know, uh, it's just, none of those things ever work. I, I've used this illustration before old school wrestling fans. Remember Sifi Afi is Samoan guy. I think he might've been, it might've been a fake Samoan. Hell, I don't know, but he was going to be the next Jimmy Snuka. So it's, the only thing worse than if you got somebody named, you know, instead of Jimmy Snuka, you got somebody named, you know, uh, mini Snuka or whatever. It's a, it's a ripoff. Nobody it never gets over. So the new Midnight Express was going to shit the bed. Cornette knew it was going to shit the bed. 
it wasn't Dennis and Bobby. Uh, it wasn't, uh, Bobby Eaton and Stan Lane. The only commonality of that whole deal is you had Cornette and his tennis racket there. That's it. And the name. Right. So nobody took it seriously. It was added to the, added to the card and it just, we, it, nobody, they, the, the, the midnight had no, we didn't do them any favors. So, cause I'm not going to say, well, they're not, they weren't either one good workers. They were both excellent workers, but again, there were no vignettes. There's no introduction. There was no, no anticipation, no nothing. So how could anybody expect that match to be really good with no story? It's not going to happen. Let me so ask. I was, I was not, dis- I was not surprised Conrad that the match didn't get over because my question to you, and I'll ask this a question, how could it? Right. But you know, the, the thing that you mentioned sort of at the top of the show is that the company is enjoying all this great success because the talent feels comfortable with this open door policy with Vince. Clearly Bart Gunn and Bob Holly don't necessarily fit into that category where they're speaking up. But Jim Cornette could have Jim Cornette used to book at the house on a regular basis. So why doesn't, or does Cornette raise his hand and say, God damn, this sucks. And we shouldn't do it this way. And if we're going to, we've got to pass the torch. We've got to tell a story. We've got to have vignettes. Or at this point is Cornette just fucking burnt out and ready to do his job, collect the check, go home. No, I don't think he's ever been that way. Uh, the latter, I, I think that he did raise his hand. I think he did make some, uh, uh, discuss it, but you know, uh, it's the old deal where, uh, uh, I'm thinking a Russo probably had a good report, Bob, Bob Holly and Bart Gunn. He saw those, sees those guys. Can we recreate something that, that had a, a good had name identity? It just was never going to work in that regard. But you know, a lot of guys, and I'm probably was in that group too. You give the benefit of the doubt to two guys that deserve the opportunity to get a push. And to get promoted. So I was always for that. So if you could repackage, uh, Bart and Bob Holly, uh, then I'm all for that. But why in the goddamn hell did we have to give them the name, the midnight express, right? It made no sense. So, uh, I'm sure Corn- corny is not b- bashful about expressing himself. I think that's things like that may have been part of the cause that he just detests Vince Russo so much nowadays. Uh, but. It just ill, ill-conceived was never going to work. And I'd sound like a naysayer. I know it all. I don't know it all, but give them another name. Yeah. How about, how about that? Einstein, just give them a goddamn another name to why they have to be the midnight express. Cause we got Cornette Well, the Cornette can manage somebody, manage them and, with another name. He could say, this team reminds me of my midnight express or that good, but nope. We give them the same damn name. Didn't make no sense. So in the future, if you're uh, keeping score at home. If you put the word new in front of it, it's not going to get over. Nope. Uh, next up, we've got, uh, Shamrock, uh, in my via, this is the King of the ring tournament finale. The winner is going to be your King of the ring. And of course we know that's Ken Shamrock. It takes him 14 minutes and nine seconds to get the win. It's their third pay-per-view match between the two in 1998. And it's just June. The first one was Royal rumble. Of course, the rematch was at WrestleMania and now this one. So there's a trilogy of pay-per-view matches. And it does feel like Shamrock is poised for a big push here. Uh, Hunter Hearst Helmsley is doing commentary at ringside. And you may ask yourself why that is well, twofold. We're trying to keep this angle with Rocky Maivia going. Of course, they're going to square off in a ladder match at SummerSlam in a couple of months. 
But most importantly, he is the person who won King of the Ring 97, which we covered last year. Uh, the match was pretty good. Three and a quarter stars. Uh, what'd you think of the match? And, and then I want to talk to you a little bit about why more wasn't done with Shamrock. Yeah, I've asked Bruce this a lot. It does feel like if you're paying attention uh, to the way the, the, the rise of Shamrock goes here, he becomes King of the Ring champion. He wins this trilogy with with Rocky Maivia, they're all on pay-per-view. It seems like a bankable guy. Uh, fans are believing him as a badass and the world's most dangerous man, but he doesn't ever really get a spot against Austin, which feels like maybe a lost opportunity before you comment on that and give me your two cents. What'd you think of this match with the rock here in their, their last match of the trilogy? I liked it. I liked the match, uh, very athletic, uh, kind of unpredictable cause you really thought that the deck was so stacked against the world's most dangerous man that somehow or another, he would not make it to the finish line uh, because rock was a big member of the nation of domination and strength in numbers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but the goal was always to try to get Kenny over and, uh, you know, rock being the heel. Now if the roles have been reversed. I'm assuming rock would probably gone over, but you know, Vince was look willing to try something different. There had not been a lot of, uh, baby face, a uh, King of the ring winners. Bret Hart in 93, I think was, was one obviously, but after that, there were few and far between it to this point in that five-year period. So, uh, but I, I enjoyed the match and I thought it was a good match and, you know, for Shamrock to win with his finish, which was an ankle lock and a submission, uh, I thought was extremely good booking because, you know, we were getting to a point there where the, I think we can thank USC for a lot of that because. You saw some really tough big time stars in USC that were, you know, getting tapped out or, or knocked out or TKO'd or whatever. So we found out that you could be a star and not lose your shine by losing to somebody's submission in pro wrestling because we see it on a regular basis in USC. So it, it became a little bit more, uh, uh, you know, realistic. So rock tapping to the ankle lock, I thought was a hell of a finish. It shows he does business. He's a pro and we got that holdover. So I thought they had a nice match and it, it the finish was a little bit surprising because you're thinking, well, there'll be a miscue, you know, there'll be a something and, and Shamrock will grab a, a quick one, as they say, uh, you know, inside cradle ro roll up, whatever, but no, he beat him with his finish, which I thought was smart and right spot on. Now, the reason that Kenny, Kenny had some issues. It's funny. Conrad, it, I was at, uh, I, I was working with you at the, at Starcast and, uh, which I appreciate the opportunities as always. And I, and I was sitting there on Sunday morning uh, with Raphael Morphy, who just went to work for AEW, by the way, congratulations to Raphael. Uh, and he, uh, and Kenny was there at your show. Looked great. You know, he's got grandchildren, but he looks phenomenal. He's still active. And he came over and we started laughing about, uh, the old days. And, uh, I had a situation where, you know, he, he missed a town and because he had uh partied a little heavy and I think he had a couple of people. Uh, so it had some company, shall we say in his room. Sure. And they all overslept. And I, I want to say, I might be wrong on this. But I, I want to say that he was booked in El Paso and all due respect to El Paso and their great cuisine. Uh, there ain't a lot of flights getting in and out of there from where the hell we were. He missed his flight. The next flight was not going to get in there until after the show's over. So he didn't go. 
And so, I, you know, that was a, a weekend deal. So, of course, I've got to bring it to the principal's office, so to speak, on uh, on uh, on Monday at Raw. And, you know, I can't, I can't do this. I give him a little fine, you know, reprimand. You know, Kenny got you can't reliability, buddy. If we can't rely on you to make the damn towns, how are you going to get it? You want to push. You want to be the, you want to make a lot of money, right? Yeah, I deserve it. Well, the guys that deserve it go to work. And, you know, I always had Jerry Briscoe around just so he could pull, pull Kenny off of me, started to kill me. <laughs> and then he, then he missed another one a few months, a few, several weeks, but, it, but in the same ballpark. So I, 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 I sent somebody for him at a TV and then I remember there's a loading dock, big loading dock, which are most of the buildings, but a big loading dock. So I tell Briscoe, I said, look, I gotta go out and talk to Shamrock. He ain't gonna like what I got to say. If I ain't back in about 10 or 15 minutes, somebody come get me, take me to the hospital, will you? And uh, cut a half-ass tongue in cheek, but you know, he had a, he had a short fuse, man. You know, he's a little unpredictable. I said, Kenny, we had this conversation. Apparently you didn't give a shit. Apparently I don't mean nothing in your life to where you're just going to do what you want to do anyway, but that's not how it's going to work here. So here's where we are. I'm going to find you a week's pay for missing this town. And no, you would not have made nearly this much money at, on the payoff of the town, but I don't, I don't know any other way to reach you. So, and I think he was making that time, maybe 250, 300 K let's say 250 on the low end. So about five grand a week. I said, uh, so I'm going to find you your, your week. And I said, and, but R we can part ways and I can't, we can't do business this way. And I said, I've talked to Vince about it. We're very disappointed. We got, we see great things in you. And, uh, you know, he, he, uh, he apologized, showed some, he was contrite and, but he's still costing $5,000 and, uh, we laughed about that. Thank God in, in Las Vegas, we did have a flashback when we put me, put, put me in the ankle lock, <laughs> my fat ass wallowing, wallowing around <laughs> in Vegas. Uh, but we had a good chat, but he, he had matured. He's matured now. He's not doing the, you know, guys don't understand, man. And I, I, I'm, I'm I could tell you this from JR's point of view. Uh, I'm not the best drunk in the world. I, I could be a miserable bastard when I could drink too much. And that's been pointed out by my late wife more than one occasion. And no, how about this? You're just fucking mean. That's what you are. <laughs> no, I'm not. Uh, I'm not mean. I'm a lovable bastard. Well, no, but when uh, you're drunk, you're fucking mean. I know. I said, you want to? Do, I, I, I would blame it on my heritage. <laughs> Cherokee Indian man. He's feeling Indians firewater, and I'm. I could be. All of a sudden, I'm a uh, Vader size. Hypothetically, though, if you've had. Um... Well, if you're in Las Vegas and you're drunk, for some reason, you're not mean there at all. It's weird how, when you introduce a little something extra in there, you're not mean at all. It's called a dispensary. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so see what you see, folks, what you get on this program, you get a lot of extra stuff here, man. Tell your friends about us, will you? Uh, so anyway, Kenny got, he, he got more responsibility. He, he was booked a lot. I mean, I, I had him booked. I mean, where we run a show, he's there. And, but he, I guess he got a little bit burned out on the road and he won, he had offered opportunities and offers significant offers to go back into MMA. Right. And in the MMA, instead of him wrestling, uh, five nights a week or four nights a week for WWE, he could fight two, three times a year in MMA and make good money. 
and be home training except for going for fight week or something. And so that's what we discussed. And, you know, I, when he left, I said, you know, the door's open. You come back anytime you want. We don't want to lose you, but we, we want, we, you're welcome to come back. And he never made the, the circle never got completed, never did to come back, but he ended up, you know, good, good, good rapport with the company. But a lot of that's because he got clean and sober because he's a different cat, man. He's just, you know, you know, he's just, he's threatening I and mean, he's, he's a dangerous son of a bitch. And, and I, I got a good rapport with him now. Thank God. But boy, he was, he wanted to go back and fight. He's, he felt like he left money on the table and he had unfinished business to do in the octagon or a cage or whatever. And so that's what happened. That's why the push kind of ceased. We had to kind of back off of it till we could figure out he's going to come to work on time regularly. And not getting more because there wasn't no, nothing else after a five thousand after his week's pay you getting fined. What's left? I'll tell you, I'll tell you what's left. You we're terminate you, right? Because the old Jimmy Johnson thing. I used to use it all the time, man. If I can't solve your problem, I have no choice but for us to eliminate it. That's what, that's what you give me. I don't. I got nothing. I got nothing left. So he had two chances: little fine, big fine. Now what's next? Next is out of here. And he didn't want that to happen. It was embarrassing, but I think he, he wanted to be home and and fight. And so that's how that worked out. That's why the, the push was cut short. Well, I don't tell you, he was very, very close in becoming a megastar in WWE. Very, very close in my opinion of getting over in a big way to, I'm talking about being at the top of the card at WrestleMania's or whatever. People believed in him as they should have, because he was damn sure real. He wasn't playing the character of somebody with a fictitious name right. that, that didn't believe in. And he, he knew what he could do and everything he did was so damn smooth and realistic. And so he was that close, man. I'm talking that close to becoming a major star and losing him to go back to MMA hurt us. It wasn't a good thing because we put a lot of money in, in him, a lot of time. So that was the deal on Kenny Shamrock. And I got all respect to work for him nowadays. You know, he's clean and sober. He looked great, clear eyed. God dang, he still looks like he could put anybody's ass in a room type thing. So, uh, big fan of Ken Shamrock, but we had to grow together and we did. Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but are you enjoying this show on Google podcasts? You should know that the Google podcast app is going away this spring. That's right. Going away, gone as in no longer available. You can still enjoy this show elsewhere, though. Try out Spotify or Amazon Music, or maybe TuneIn is more your style. Whatever app you switch to, be sure to follow so you never miss the next episode. And thanks for listening wherever you listen. So the next match is why we're really here. It's Undertaker and Mankind and the Hell in a Cell. You've got to go back to 1997 and you see the undertaker take on Shawn Michaels in the very first hell in a cell match, October 97. It really changed cage matches. Uh, just a phenomenal match. Uh, it was a five-star match in the wrestling observer and, and everyone who saw it would agree. Just one of the absolute greatest matches of all time. And in that match, we saw Shawn Michaels about halfway down the cage, take a bump through the announce table. And now the stakes have been raised. So we've got another hell in a cell and Mick Foley is going to take it to a level that maybe it should have never been taken to. And we'll talk about it today, but nobody listening to this has not seen this match. One of the most famous matches in, in, in wrestling history, not just WWF or WWE history, but all of wrestling history it goes 16 minutes. It's unbelievable. 
Um, most people remember when the undertaker threw Mick off the cage, you said, good God almighty, good God almighty that killed him as God is my witness. He's broken in half. And we've talked about that for years. Um, you continued with this great commentary and, and some people have said that the wrestlers play the music and the announcers provide the lyrics and your lyrics here when he's getting off the stretcher are how in the hell is he standing? And after it gets off the stretcher, some minutes after being thrown off the cell, look at this. He's got a smile on his face for God's sake. Are you kidding me? He wants to go back up after he's choke slammed through the roof of the cell. Will somebody stop the damn match after he's choke slammed again, enough's enough. The poor son of a bitch. He's broken in half. After he goes through the thumbtacks for the first time, good God, he looks like a human pincushion. I mean, this match is just one of, of wrestling folklore forever. And, and Mick Foley would write in his book, he had been tentatively scheduled to face stone cold, the King of the ring in a special hell in a cell match. Unfortunately, as I learned with the aid of a phone call, the feeling was that Foley Austin three wouldn't Vince Russo broke the news. And as he did, I could feel my heart sink. I knew that mankind wasn't over, but I was hoping that the office wouldn't catch on to the current apathy for a while. And <laughs> Russo's comments made me realize they had quote cactus. We're just concerned that the audience won't buy another match with you and Steve. So I'm definitely out of the cell match. I said with a whole lot of sadness in my voice, no, no. An excited Russo corrected me. You're still in the cell. It's just that it'll be you in there with the undertaker. Now Austin will wrestle Kane for the title. Mick says he was overjoyed, but minutes after hanging up, he started to feel as if being in the cell was certain failure. I'm screwed. I thought I suck inside a cage. Undertaker has a broken foot. No one cares about me. And besides was the world really calling out for a sixth undertaker mankind pay-per-view encounter. At that point, I had no idea that it would become the most talked about match of my career before we move on with what Mick wrote. Do you think that the match would have looked totally different? Had you went with the original creative of mankind and Austin in a cage, or do you think mankind would have still, or Foley would have still kind of came around to this idea? Oh, I, I can't after seeing it and calling it and being there, reliving it, you know, last year was the 20th anniversary of that match. So there was a lot of hubbub, a lot of scuttle talk, whatever you want to say. I can't see anybody else doing it. Taker and Mick on that night made magic. All the stars, the Oaks cliche aligned, no doubt. Those two guys were always, always had good chemistry. The one of the reasons I've told you this before, Conrad, is I use the old analogy of when the Lakers had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar playing on the low post for the Lakers. And if you're going to try to win the West in the NBA, you better be able to defend the, the low post and have a defensive mind, an artist Gilmore type guy, you know, somebody that could defend a Kareem. Well, we had a seven foot baby face. that was over, but we were running out of viable opponents that could actually pose a somewhat realistic and viable threat in the pro wrestling vernacular in the, in the ring and so forth. Uh, I can't see it being anybody else. I really can't. And the way that the Austin, uh, Kane match went with the wild West show and all the, all the blood and all the violence, uh, 
uh, and, and no cage was, uh, was, I thought extremely well done for what they had to follow Austin and Kane with Austin having that staff infection and, and not been, and being weak as a cat, as Reeser Bowden would say, the old TV announcer at, uh, Shreveport in the mid South mid South days, I felt like a plate full of piss. That's weak. A plate full of piss. I use that occasionally. Jim Cornette reminded me of that the other day. We did a little promotion together. Uh, but it would not have been good. It's good. So I don't, I can't see it changing. I, I, I like what happened. And even though I don't condone what the, how it, how it came about with the injuries and so forth, but man, I can't, it'd be, it'd be sacrilegious in a wrestling sense to even think of anybody else in that hell in a cell match on, in June of 1998, other than the undertaker, Mick Foley just wouldn't work for me. Let's keep it going. He says before the match, he sits down with Terry Funk, believe it or not, at Titan towers and has the video department, get in the tape of undertaker Michaels from hell in a cell one, the October 97 match. And he says, Which, by the way, by the way, Connor, excuse me. That was one hell of a match. Sean and taker in the hell in a cell. That match had a major, major, uh, uh, part of the audience understanding that Shawn Michaels was not only a great flyer, high spot guy, you know, the hurricane runners, the drop kicks, the super kicks, stuff off the top, blah, blah, blah. That a lot of smaller baby faces utilized resourcefulness, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but man, he, uh, proved how tough he was because in our commentary, I think that came out very well in that show. And I didn't buy even mention that. Shawn Michaels proved to the world that he was not just sizzle. There was a lot of stake in his game and that match with taker and that held in the cell was, uh, a major part of that transformation and evolution of Shawn Michaels in ring persona. He was no longer just a, a, a technique guy. He was a tough son of a bitch. And he proved that in that match. Great. If folks have not seen that match, it's worth your time because they really two of the greats of all time. Two Hall of Fame guys, two people that we'll always talk about in wrestling. They had one of their best nights together at that paper, at that event. Now back to I'm just I diverted there, but the point being is that Foley and Taker had big shoes to fill, especially Huge. Mick. Mick had to play the role of Shawn Michaels. Now you do the math. Yeah, that's tough. And 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 Foley realized that. He says when they finished watching it, he and Funk, they go several minutes not saying a word. And then finally Terry speaks up and, and sort of mumbles cactus. That one's going to be hard to beat. I know. Plus I'm a hundred pounds heavier than Sean. I just can't do some of the things in that cage that he can. And then they sat in silence for a couple of minutes and then he broke the silence. What do you think I should do? And he's asking this of his friend, his mentor and his hero, Terry Funk. And it, Mick would write his answer would help make me professionally and damn near break me physically quote. I think you ought to start the match on top of the cage and Foley would say, you would think I would know better than to listen to Terry Funk. And we continued to talk on the way to the show, but it was mostly joking around. Goddamn cack. The Funker said laughing. Maybe you should just let him throw you off the top of the cage. Yeah. I shot back. Then I could climb back up and he could throw me off again. Man. Well, God damn it. That's not what I meant. Jack, let him throw you off one time for God's sakes. So they're just sort of goofing around. And then he quietly says to Terry, I think I can do it. 
And he says he had told the undertaker about a week out from the match that he was planning on starting the match on top of the cage, but undertaker didn't seem real positive about that idea. And then he said, I had to tell him otherwise, if he walked out and saw me standing on the top and decided not to follow, he looked like he would look like a big dummy having to climb back down. So he asked him every day for a week and every day would shoot it down. And then the day before the match, he asked him again and he shook his head and asked him a question. Not as the deep and dark undertaker, but as a guy who had known him for eight years and who over the course of some battles had developed a bond. And he said, Jack, why are you so intent on killing yourself up there? (laughs) And he answered, because I'm afraid this match is going to stink. You can't walk. And let's face it. I don't have any heat. We've got a heck of a legacy to live up to. And I don't want this match to ruin it. If we can start it out hot enough. We can make people think we had a hell of a match. Even if we didn't take your thought it over and then you could see him cracking. And he said, I'll think about it. And they parted ways. Now let's get to the match. But before we do, I want to ask, did you hear the rumblings that they're going to start on top and he's coming off because these days the guys do a walkthrough. And so everything's sort of talked about with each other and the agents and you know, they, they do this before doors open and fans can come in. Do you remember it ever being discussed ahead of time? I, I thought it was just a, uh, absurd rumor and it just, uh, locker room talk because it was unbelievable that somebody would even consider doing something like that. It was unprecedented. There was no way to do it safely. There was no way to execute that maneuver and do it safely. Now somebody, some smart ass out there listening might say, well, they could have had a you know, they could have broken his fall with a, some kind of padding or whatever. Well, yeah. Yeah. A lot of things could have, they could put it, he could have been in a harness or something too. I don't know. It, it was silly because you'd never want to put the talent in a position where they, there's no, there's, it's not just simply a fact that there's no margin for error. There's going to be error. You can't do this and not hurt somebody. And the other issue is that we already had Austin with a bad elbow, bad wheels, neck, we got Taker with a, you know, bone spurs and his foot's all problematic. God dang, man, we didn't need to lose any more people. So I just, I heard the, the idea this casually discussed along these lines. Hey, Jared, hear what, what Mick's latest idea is. I said, I'm afraid to ask Well, he's thinking about starting doing something on top, not starting. He's thinking about doing something on top of the cage. So, you know, so I didn't know how that was going to end or whatever. I just thought, well, I'm trying to figure out in my mind, how can he do that and not kill himself or at least be hurt and be off work for a while and maybe for a long while. Uh, so I just blew it off. I didn't think any more about it. I thought it's that absurd. It's not going to ever happen. So when it happened, I almost took a dump in my (laughs) tuxedo. Let's keep it moving here. He's talking about in his book, when he's on top of the cage, he comes out, he climbs up and he's looking back at the aisle and he sees the undertaker's really cool entrance. And normally before, you know, he has a big bump, he gets a little scared, but it's what he called a good scare. And he says, this is not a good scare at all. He says, in fact, I saw no chance for a happy ending. And I walked back to face the aisle and taker was about to ascend. This is it. I thought showtime. And he grabs him by the shirt and trunks. And he, I'm picking it up here directly from his book. And suddenly I was airborne 16 feet high and falling fast. As the Spanish announcers dove for cover, it was the scariest moment of my life. 
but almost a relief when I landed on the announcer table and felt it crumple beneath my weight. I had missed the monitors, which was my biggest concern and landed about as perfectly as one could hope for. But the impact had spun me halfway underneath the security railing so that my legs were in the audience. My upper body. Meanwhile, was covered with debris of the table. Um, at least I mistakenly thought as I enjoyed the attention, the worst is over. I was about as wrong in that assessment as a human being can possibly be. So before we talk about anything else that happened in the match, he, he talks about as he's laying there, his shoulders hurting, it's dislocated from the fall. He feels a dull pain in his kidney area, but he has this feeling of inner peace as, uh, people are trying to, you know, work on him and, and, and help him because he knows he's, he's pulled it off. One of the things I thought about for the first time a couple of years ago is what if he missed God, Conrad disaster. I mean, he'd have been crippled and maybe, and maybe worse. It may be dead. Oh yeah, exactly. The thing about it is see that, that all the, there was not, we were on the, the ring and all that stuff was on the ice. There was a little plywood thing. I mean, that plywood would be the right word. It was a little thin wood that just for the ring and the chairs and stuff around the, the ice part of it was uh, protected. There's no padding. So if he missed the table, whereas the table would not break his fall to some small degree, you can only imagine what would have occurred. It, it doesn't. Quite frankly, I don't know how you would have survived it. I really don't. It, it may be this. It may be this. Maybe the worst case scenario for him, if he had missed, was he would have been crippled and confined to a wheelchair for the rest of his days. But the other side of that equation could very easily have been, it could have been a fatality. And so that's why I was, hey, look, everything you heard me say, man, was unrehearsed. I didn't write shit down. I, don't, I never did that. And I didn't know what he was, what, I didn't know he was going to go off the off. And I was mad. I was pissed off how, how we as a, as an administrative group from creative, whether it be Russo or the agent of that match or whatever it was that we allowed that to happen. I was pissed off. It made no sense in the big picture. And I guarantee you, if you go back and watch that, sh- that, uh, pay-per-view folks, watch the, when McMahon came out to check on Mick. Breaking his heel persona, uh, you'll see a genuine concern on Vince's face because he had realized that Mick's moving around, he's moving his legs, moving his arms, not knowing about the kidney and all this other stuff. I don't think he probably even knew that his shoulder was dislocated, but Vince had a strong, as strong a look of concern as I've ever seen him have because we knew that we probably made a mistake in doing that. And we knew that uh, he knew probably the same as me that. We dodged a big ass bullet. I mean, I, I hate to be that guy, but if he misses and his head hits the guardrail, that could have immediately killed him right away. Yeah. Snaps his yeah. neck. He's done. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I, I hate to make a, a race comparison cause I'm not a race guy, but I remember when Dale Earnhardt died, I saw the crash and I thought, well, I mean, it's not a spectacular crash. It's not end over end. It's not this glamorous, fiery tumble that we've seen in NASCAR when guys walk away. So I, like a lot of folks assumed. Oh, he's going to be fine. Yep. But that was the end. And it was because, I mean, 
his neck was broken and that was a wrap. And if, if his head hits that guardrail with that amount of distance and that weight at that height, I mean, this, this could be another tragedy instead. I mean, it was not, it was no easy task as it is. And Mick would write climbing the cell with a dislocated shoulder was no easy task, but this time I wasn't scared or hesitant. I was running on adrenaline. I was literally flying in my heart as the undertaker and I raced to the top. The crowd reaction was unbelievable. They had sworn the match was over, but they had just seen the damnedest thing in the history of the business. And now we were going to give them more. I mean, when you see him get off the stretcher and, and, and climb up again, what's going through your mind? I, I thought, well, somebody's going to pull him off the side of the case. Certainly this is not something that's booked. Uh, Cause I don't know that it was booked that way. I don't know. I don't know this very day that the plan was, okay, we're going to throw Mick off the top of the cell. He's going to go through the announce table. He's going to the, the, the ice of the igloo where the, uh, penguins play is going to break his fall. Wink, wink. And then if he survives that, we're going to do another spot where he put his ass back up top so he can fall through awkwardly. And which is quite frankly, a lot of people say was more dangerous than the other deal because he was in control of the other one where he could, he could do his rotation. He'd get turned and they, they landed in a, as he said, about as good as you could land lucky as hell missed all the monitors and so forth. But then to go back up was, it was, uh, it was unheard of. I was appalled that it happened. I was scared. I, I said, well, what are we doing? This guy, have we just come up with every crazy ass thing we could get him to do? And because Mick is Mick, he's not going to say no. So, uh, I was angry, man. I was pissed off and I didn't see the response. I didn't see the, even the beginning people getting out there quick enough. And nowadays there's a doctor at ringside and all these, they, WWE does a great job taking care of their athletes in that respect. But more than, uh, there were some holes in our armor in that regard. So I was pissed off. I just didn't, didn't make any sense. You got to understand I was pissed off as the TV announcer, Jr. I was pissed off as the EVP of talent, Jim Ross. We got a great commodity, a great asset, and we're just screwing with it. That's how I thought at that time. That was not exactly the case, but in the moment of, you know, Mick wasn't the only guy running on adrenaline, especially when he, he, he fell. I was on law. I was on that side as best I recall. And he was just, he was a few feet when he hit, it was, it was a horrid, horrid. And like you said, Conrad, what if? What if it, this had not happened? What if he had had hit his head? What if he did get the full rotation and then going back up, he didn't have a chance to defend himself. He didn't have a chance to take a, a bump that would allow him some protection. And the way he landed was just sickening, sickening. I think maybe where I got my sickening thud over the years, because God dang, man, it just sounded like a, he was in a car wreck and got ejected out of the car. And there he lies again in a heap. What else can we do to this poor bastard? He would say if he could change one thing about the match, it would be his next effort, which was a dynamic exchange of punches atop the 16 foot structure that would have sent the crowd into a frenzy. But instead he stood there slug like as the undertaker battered him without any retaliation quote, he clubbed me across the back with a chair and then unceremoniously dropped it on the cage. I really wish he would have put it somewhere else. Then he grabbed me around the neck for the goozle or choke slam. And I don't remember a thing about the next two minutes as I watched the tape in great pain. The next day, it was the only time in 15 years I'd been knocked out cold. 
I'd been not goofy countless times. I'd seen stars and rainbows and black patches as a way of life for a long time, but this was the first time that a period of time elapsed and I wasn't aware of it. Like I said earlier, however, video and time have helped me not only see, but remember almost everything, everything except what I was feeling as I broke through the mesh and crashed to the canvas. Looking back at it now, it was both the worst choke slam and the best choke slam I'd ever taken. The worst because it was the only time in my association with the undertaker that I hadn't even gone high for the goozle. As a matter of fact, one of my feet never left the cage the best, because if I'd taken it correctly, I might very well have been dead as it was. I landed hard on my back, my neck and the back of my head. If I'd gone higher, I would have landed directly on my head and probably wouldn't be here or at least not in control of my limbs. It was indeed a violent, brutal fall made worse by the fact that I landed in one of the old Federation rings, which had very little give. Yeah. We, 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 we changed that uh, scenario. Not too long after that, that old, that okay. That old, uh, those rings were for those super heavyweights that dotted the WWE landscape back in that, in that one era of time. And you know, when you got a big Hulk Hogan with the top baby face and you, all these big heels coming in, you know, to match up the Bundies of the world and so forth. Uh, that ring was hard as a rock and, uh, talents hated it. When I first got that job, that's one of the things guys said, well, I hope you, JR, you will address the goddamn rings. And I did. And so we, we got a more bump friendly ring. I'm sure they're still using the same rings today, but they're more talent friendly for sure. But those rings were God dang. They're just, they're, it was embarrassing that we didn't change the, that we didn't change the rings earlier because the styles of more bumps and more high risk bumps were becoming more prominent. And so we did that, but the Mick thing was certainly a catalyst to help us uh, move to that direction in a very rapid pace. You know, as that Vince said, get rid of all those hard son bitches and let's, you know, get a, get a different ring, blah, blah, blah. Vince's only issue was he didn't want a ring that was so noisy that it was distracting, but we, we got rings that are bump friendly and, uh, almost too late, but we got it done to make matters worse. Mick would write. The chair was placed on the cage and followed my body down and smashed into my face from a height of 12 and a half feet. The blow to my face would result in one and a half teeth being knocked out, a dislocated jaw and a hole beneath my lip that I could stick my tongue through. Francois and the EMTs tried to help me as I lay on my back and my arms outstretched and my legs sickly twisted to one side. I later asked the undertaker what he thought when he looked down at me from atop the cell. His answer was chilling in its simplicity. I thought you were dead. Terry Funk was there to meet him and willingly took a choke slam to give me one more time to get up. TV showed multiple replays of my falling through the cage. And when they came back, I was on my feet, but just barely. I don't believe it said a stunned JR. He's either crazy or the toughest SOB I've ever seen. Before we keep going, I do want to ask you here, JR. Was Mick Foley the toughest man you ever met in wrestling? I mean, I know there's lots of stories about badasses and, you know, this guy or that guy, but could anybody, has anybody ever taken more punishment than Mick Foley in wrestling? Not that I've, not that I uh, have encountered. There's a difference in being uh, tough in the context we're talking about here and being the baddest dude in the land. Sure. You know, Mick Foley's not the baddest dude in the land, as he would readily admit, but I've never seen, if he's the, he's a classic definition, Conrad. Uh, being tougher than a $2 steak. He is, and I've never seen anybody that could, could, that has, was in so much pain more often than not, he was in pain all the time. 
and he was in pain all the time. And he had been in pain a lot more often than not before he, we hired him. You know, he's taking elbows off. He's slamming a guy on the outside. There's no mats out there. He gets on the outside. He runs down the, uh, the apron of the ring and does a big flying elbow and his hip would always hit the concrete to break his fall. And you can do that once maybe hell. He did it on a regular basis seemingly for years. So you can only imagine how that pain manifested itself over, over time. So yeah, I, if there's somebody tougher in the respect of standing, uh, being able to withstand pain, I never met him. Mix the top of the list. It's unbelievable. Uh, the undertaker threw a punch Meltzer Meltzer Foley would write. And I went down slowly. It may have been the saddest bump ever taken because there was no strength left in my body. I don't want to sound dramatic or pat myself on the back, but I really had been standing on sheer will alone. Now, as I lay in a heap, it seemed that even my will was gone. Jack, let's go home. The undertaker quietly said to me, no, no, I'm okay. I replied, <laughs> of course, Taker winds up winning the match. And uh, as we know, there was a thumbtack bump and just all kinds of craziness. And Mick would write, I lay there for a few minutes. And as Francois, the Funker and referees checked on my condition, the EMTs brought a stretcher to the ring and he asked Mike Kyoto, and you can see this on camera, uh, was I already on a stretcher once tonight? And Kyoto says, yes, Jack, you were. And then he says, then can you help me up? I don't want to be on a stretcher twice in one night, uh, which is unbelievable. But as he's helped to the back with, uh, Kyoto and Terry Funk assisting the fans start to chant Foley Foley and Jr. summed it up. How can anyone not admire the effort of this man? Mankind Mick Foley is beyond me. And he would write when I walked through the curtain, I was met by a sound of applause from the remaining wrestlers and a hug from Vince McMahon. Despite recent media portrayals of Vince, he was genuinely concerned with my well being. I responded by talking way too much, way too fast and way too intelligent for a guy who had just been through hell. He had to have known that I was messed up. I was almost like a drunk driver who tries too hard to act sober that he gives himself away. My entering conversation with Mike Yoda was not the only one I failed to recollect. Several days after the match, I asked the undertaker if I'd spoken to him afterwards. He laughed as he recalled our conversation. Did I use thumbtacks out there is apparently what I'd come out with. He looked at me still covered with the damn things and said, yes, you did Jack. Yes, you did. Oh, good. I replied and walked away. His evening's not over yet though. Francois has to put his shoulder back in his socket and he's got to help get his bearings. And I can't believe this is real, but, uh, he's going to come back out for the main event. The main, this is not the main event. Unbelievably. We've still got another match on this show. Uh, Kane is going to win the world title from Steve Austin, which on any other show would be all anybody talks about. It's Kane's first world title win. He just debuted with the company in October. And fast forward, you know, six or eight months, and he's now beating the hottest act the company ever had in a first blood match. Um, as a result, it doesn't matter what type of effort these guys had in the match. No one talks about it because of the match that just happened before, but Meltzer gave it three and a quarter stars. It is interesting because it's a first blood match with a guy who is completely covered, uh, including a mask. Uh, but maybe that's why, you know, they're trying to paint the story. They are that of course he's got to overcome all these incredible odds, including being covered. But even after all the hell that mankind's been in, he comes out for this match. 
as does the undertaker in hindsight, Jr. did mankind coming back out add to the story or should that have been fucking it? Well, you know, again, I was squeamish the whole damn thing, but I would have said, I would have said no, uh, because in, and in today's WWE in today's probably a lot of other companies, he would not have had the opportunity to come back out no matter what was booked. Right. Cause again, we've not talked about anything about concussions here. Uh, we haven't talked about concussion protocol. We haven't talked about CTE, uh, none of that stuff. So knowing what we know now from a medical standpoint, these athletes and these head injuries, these traumas, uh, there's no way he would have been clear to go back out there. So, uh, I believe that did he add to the end? Yeah. And especially where we're going with other things and other programs and so forth. Yeah, that made sense, but in, could that have been done on another night? Of course it could have some way. So I, I believe that he should have been shut down at that point. And in today's world, he absolutely would be. And I agree with that today's world. Who knows, man, how many, you know, I often, that always troubles me about Mick, you know, uh, is as the older he gets, is he, is he going to be good with his mind? Are all these concussions and chair shots and all these amazing things that he's done to his body? What toll is it going to take on him, uh, in the future? And that concerns me to this very day. It concerns me. So answer your question. Easy for me. No, he would not have been sent back out. They'd have called a little bit of an audible. That'd been easy to do. Bottom line is Mr. McMahon was going to facilitate the win, blah, blah, blah. So, but that's just Mick, man. It was, it was a, here's Mick is a player's coach, a, a, a great coach, great player to coach for those guys and creative and so forth, because he'll do anything. And he's got good logic about doing things that he can do well. But, uh, we, we would, we need to shut him down on that deal. And we didn't, and thank God, you know, he didn't get hurt any worse out there. I don't guess, we, you know, but it was scary to see him back out there and God almighty, you know, at, if we want to turn him baby face at some point and we did, you know, that's, those are all these great reasons that people start believing in Mick. You know, he's, he's tough. He, he's, he's, a, he's amazing. He does things nobody else can or will do. And he survived it somehow. So. No, he, he, for me, in today's world, shut down. You're, you're done. Go take a shower. Let's get you to the hospital. Mick would write in his book that Vince came to see him in his locker room and said, Mick, I want you to know how much we appreciate everything you've done for this company, but please promise me that I'll never see you do anything like it ever again. I do want to mention too, this main event with uh, Kane on the buildup to this first blood match. The stipulation is if Kane loses, he's going to set himself on fire and breathe his last breath. But we know that doesn't happen. He becomes the world champion. Vince McMahon or Mr. McMahon is very pleased with that. And the next night on raw at the gun arena in Cleveland, it's another sellout 16,505 fans, an incredible gate, 266 grand. The show opens with Vince Briscoe and slaughter coming out to present Kane with the world title. Interestingly enough, it's not the same quote unquote, big Eagle, the new design that, uh, Austin had been using. It is the old school Reggie parks made winged Eagle that Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart and guys like that held, uh, before Austin, um, later in the show, of course, we know Austin is going to pin Kane to win the world title for the second time. And the undertaker comes to the ring during the match 
Uh, and after the match, he gets in the ring. Austin gives him the stunner that sets up the collision course for SummerSlam, which I'm sure we'll cover at some point. Uh, talk to me about the creative to have Austin lose the title on pay-per-view and then win it back the next night. Is this to normally these surprises, these quote unquote swerves were for television why the title change on a pay-per-view is it just to ha- set up the rematch for raw and pop a big rating because if so it works raw does a 5.36 and nitro does a 4.05 it winds up being the third highest rating in the history of raw up to that point oh well uh it, the that finish the first blood finish the first time i was exposed to the first blood finish conrad was in the mid-south territory we had a 300-pound babyface, top babyface, named the Cowboy Bill Watts. And he was very strategic in how he lost. Because he, I said, why are you building your, I, I asked this question out of ignorance, I guess. Why are you building everything around you? And he said, kid, I'm the only son of a bitch here I can depend on. And he said, everything I got is riding on this territory. Okay, that makes sense. But the first blood stipulation was set up to get a win for the other guy, not the bleeder, the other guy. And more often than not, it was the other guy, the heel, using brass knucks or a foreign object or whatever and, and helping get the color or a post shot or whatever. Back in those days, get running a guy's head or body into the ring post was a disqualification. Now, even a clenched fist is okay. And, and sometimes people wonder why the business is not so emotional or so dramatic because there's no goddamn rules anymore. If they're, and people say, why do we need rules? So the goddamn heels have something to break and they don't do it in front of the, if you do it in front of the referee, it means nothing. It means nothing. It, it, it just makes no sense. So, uh, I, I, I just, I, I the, the old first blood thing was an old territory finish. It was a way to protect the baby face and still get the win on the heel. And that's kind of the situation there with, uh, with Steve and Kane. We didn't want to beat Steve, uh, in a one, two, three type situation. So it came up with a stipulation, a gimmick match, if you will. And, uh, it seemed to, you know, it had a lot of drama. The fans liked the blood. We were doing a little bit of blood then, you know, more than probably maybe should have, but nonetheless, the attitude there had a lot of juice in it, uh, for that, for that, uh, that time. So I, I just, I just. It was a, it was a good finish for that. It protected Steve. It didn't hurt Kane and it facilitated, uh, Vince's role as I'm the most powerful son of a bitch here. So you're not Austin. This is my company. I'm the boss and you're going to work for my ass. And some of these days I'm going to break you. That was the whole deal. So I didn't, ha- I didn't have a problem with the finish. Now I don't remember what our dialogue was, but I believe, uh, the decision to put the belt back on Steve the next night was something that we had discussed going into this thing at a pretty, pretty good time in advance. Once the first blood stipulation was finalized, we knew that Austin was going to lose the title. Now, so the question was always, when does he get it back? And Vince's idea was, well, he's going to get it back Monday night. So that was a deal. I don't know. Everything done on, on TV is for a rating. When we go on in October, when AEW goes on TNT on a weekly basis, it's going to be about the ratings. If you're, that's, that's the nature of the business. It's still about the ratings for WWE on Monday night ratings, ratings. That's, they follow that stuff like crazy as they should. 
But uh, I, I think that I don't know if it's specifically for the ratings, but the ratings are always a component that has to be taken into consideration. And for those of us who try to say, oh, it's not, it wasn't ratings, it's all creative, that's bullshit. Ratings are always a top priority. Well, and they're our top priority here, and we'll see it next Thursday and every Thursday at 6 a.m. Eastern right here on the mighty Westwood One with Grillin' JR. Hey, everybody. This is Dan Bespris, host of Fantasy NBA Today, a daily fantasy basketball podcast. We cover every box score from every game every day, plus bonus shows on buy low opportunities, players to stash, schedule analysis, and really anything you could need to smash your league into deliciously tiny pieces. Catch the Fantasy NBA Today podcast, part of the Believe Network, on YouTube or wherever you listen.